2: Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. worldafropedia.com. Yeah,
1: and, and so I try to do that, and I feel like ugh, I got so many illustrations of that in Invisible Man of the main character attempting to discard the weight of quote-unquote being black or trying to figure out what that's supposed to mean, trying to get rid of it. And it ended up being black people often who made him take it back, Uh, particularly with that bank when he tries to get rid of it the first time. Mm -hmm. And a black female – and not only does she make him dig it out of the trash, she calls him a nigger. The second time he tries to get rid of it, black person – She calls him a nigger, and she threatens to call white people, the police, to make him pick it back up. Um, The second time he tries to get rid of it, black person picks it up, chases him down, takes it back, gets upset. He calls him a negro. Doesn't call him a nigger, but he does call him a negro, and he makes the main character take this minstrel bank back. Uh, And I just – I thought that was incredible that it happens the same way both times. They both explicitly label, like, bam, you have been stamped nigger. You are not going to escape this. Bam, we are going to make sure that you – and the threat of calling white people to make sure that you don't cast off uh, this notion of blackness. Um, I'll just what – what do you think about that?
2: Um, I think I think you're right. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of, of, of Dr. Painter's work. I use a lot of my classes. Um, And yes, throughout the text, he has certain labels affixed to him by both whites and blacks. And I think it's important. I mean, I I think it's just genius that you connect uh, the bank to the True Blood episode because they are intimately connected. It's very difficult to make sense of them in some ways um, because why would Mary Rambo, this figure in the text of a true black woman who understands herself, who understands her heritage, who understands black cultural existence, Why is it that she has this bank within her boarding house? I mean, this is what the protagonist asks himself when he wakes up after joining the Brotherhood. Why would she keep this image around? Um, And just a a little background, Ellison actually uh, wrote to a friend that he uh, came up with this idea based on reading Melville's The Confidence Man, and there's a figure in that, Black Guinea, who um, really enacts uh, what the bank does, which is opening one's mouth to catch coins uh, thrown um, by white people. Um, however, it's, it's suggested that there's actually it's actually a white man who's impersonating a black Sambo figure um, who's trying to get money from other folks. So this is what Ellison was basing it on. Um, but this Sambo bank that he ends up carrying around with him in his briefcase that he cannot get rid of, um, you're right, it is, it is one more testament to this idea Um, that his racial identity is fixed on him in such a way that he can't get rid of it. But just like the paper that he burns, because remember, he does not empty that briefcase. That briefcase is filled with artifacts that represent other people in positions of power trying to define who he is, right? The piece of paper with his name written on it, his diploma, which is one piece of paper that goes back to what you said in the beginning with Dr. Les's. Um, statement that this is one more way that society has tried to define success, Um, the Sambo doll that Todd Clifton has sold once he realizes that the Brotherhood is an organization that is not truly invested in seeing African Americans' progress, and this bank, all of these things remain in that briefcase. But I think in the end, Ellison wants to suggest that it's the protagonist's responsibility to either accept others defying him or to reject it. Um, And the reason I I, I feel that way is because Mary Rambo, you might say, well, why does she have this figure? Why does the couple that's evicted, why do they have all these artifacts? Is this really just examples of their own confusion, their own inability to understand their race, to understand their individuality? Um, I would say it's their strength that they're able to understand a certain complexity in their existence. That, yes, there are moments where they may have exploited themselves, that they may have enacted roles that are demeaning, but that those moments don't deny their humanity. And this is something that I think um, Ellison uh, hammers away at from beginning to end, with the beginning with the old woman who's, who's being spiritual. Why is she trying to define freedom? She is someone who has been raped by a white master who, whose sons, end up killing him. And do you know what she expresses? She expresses ambivalence because it's difficult for her to love her kids and hate him in the way that she thinks she should. And what Ellison wants this protagonist to understand is that ambivalence, uncertainty, contradictory emotions, contradictory images, it's not about getting rid of those. It's about accepting a certain complexity to one's human existence that defines all of us. And I guess um, in many ways, this is what got Ellison in big trouble uh, with black artists, uh, black um, uh, th- those, those writers um, like Addison Gale and, and, and Larry Neal, who changes later, but uh, who we associate with the black arts movement, who were much more radical uh, and politically um, uh, so, sort of aggressive um, in talking about racism than Ellison was. It's what, these are the things that get him in trouble with that group, I think
3: context of white supremacy gusty renegade in for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date friday july 13th 2018 so i have been told this our 11th study session on ralph ellison's Invisible Man, Gus T's all time favorite book. We're picking up on chapter 21. uh, The voice you heard that was Professor Lena Hill. She was a guest on the program in 2011. Beautiful black female. She's written extensively about Invisible Man, Allison. Uh, She touched on a point that was one of the questions that I asked last week. Uh, The happy nigger bank and the Sambo that he collects from the late Brother Todd Clifton, the uh, leg iron that he gets from Brother Tarp. What do these little knickknacks represent since he ends up hanging on to them for such a long time? Without further ado, we will go ahead and get started. Chapter 22, after the ep- or not epilogue, but after the funeral for the late Brother Todd Clifton. The Cows, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, audio segment number one. When I saw them sitting in their shirt sleeves, leaning forward, gripping their crossed
0: knees with their hands, I wasn't surprised. I'm glad it's you, I thought. This will be business without tears. It was as though I had expected to find them there, just as in those dreams in which I encountered my grandfather looking at me from across the dimensionless space of a dream room. I looked back without surprise or emotion, although I know even in the dream that surprise was the normal reaction and the lack of it, was to be distrusted, a warning. I stood just inside the room, watching them, as I slipped off my jacket, seeing them grouped around a small table upon which there rested a pitcher of water, a glass, and a couple of smoking ashtrays. One half of the room was dark, and only one light burned, directly above the table. They regarded me silently. Brother Jack with a smile that went no deeper than his lips, his head cocked to one side. Studying me with his penetrating eyes, the others blank faced, looking out of eyes that were meant to reveal nothing and to stir profound uncertainty. The smoke rose in spirals from their cigarettes as they sat perfectly contained, waiting. So you came after all, I thought, going over and dropping into one of the chairs. I rested my arm on the table, noticing its coolness. Well, how did it go? Brother Jack said, extending his clasped hands across the table and looking at me with his head to one side. You saw the crowd, I said. We finally got them out. No, we did not see the crowd. How was it? They were moved, I said, a great number of them. But beyond that, I I don't know. They were with us, but how far? I don't know. And for a moment, I could hear my own voice in the quiet of the high-ceilinged hall. So is that all the great tactician has to tell us, Brother Tobit said. In what direction were they moved? I looked at him, aware of the numbness of my emotions. They had flowed in one channel too long and too deeply. That's for the committee to decide. They were aroused. That was all we could do. We tried again and again to reach the committee for guidance, but we couldn't. So? So we went ahead on my personal responsibility. Brother Jack's eyes narrowed. What was that? He said. Your what? My personal responsibility, I said. His personal responsibility, Brother Jack said. Did you hear that, brothers? Did I hear him correctly? Where did you get it, brother? He said. This is astounding. Where did you get it? From your mu- I started and caught myself in time. From the committee, I said. There was a pause. I looked at him, his face reddening, as I tried to get my bearings. A nerve trembled in the center of my stomach. Everyone came out, I said, trying to fill it in. We saw the opportunity, and the community agreed with us. It's too bad you missed it. You see? He's sorry we missed it, Brother Jack said. He held up his hand. I could see the deeply etched lines in his palm. The great tactician of personal responsibility, regrets our absence doesn't he see how i feel i thought can't he see why i did it what's he trying to do tobit's a fool but why is he taking it up you could have taken the next step i said forcing the words we went as far as we could on your personal responsibility brother jack said bowing his head in time with the words i looked at him steadily now I was told to win back our following, so I tried. The only way I knew how. What's your criticism? What's wrong? So now, he said, rubbing his eye with a delicate circular movement of his fist, the great tactician asks, what's wrong? Is it possible that something could be wrong? Do you hear him, brothers? There was a cough. Someone poured a glass of water, and I could hear it fill up very fast than the rapid rill-like trickle of the final drops dripping from the pitcher lip into the glass. I looked at him, my mind trying to bring things into focus. You mean he admits the possibility of being incorrect, Tobit said. Sheer modesty, brother, the sheerest modesty. We have here an extraordinary tactician, a Napoleon of strategy and personal responsibility— Strike while the iron is hot as his motto. Seize the instance by its throat. Shoot at the whites of their eyes. Give them the axe, the axe, the axe, and so forth. I stood up. I don't know what this is all about, brother. What are you trying to say? There is a good question, brothers. Sit down, please. It's hot. He wants to know what we're trying to say. We have here not only an extraordinary tactician but one who has an appreciation for subtleties of expression. Yes, and for sarcasm when it's good, I said, and for discipline, sit down, please, it's hot, and for discipline, and for orders and consultation when it's possible to have them, I said. Brother Jack grinned. Sit down, sit down. And for patience, when I'm not sleepy and exhausted, I said, and not overheated as I am just now. You'll learn, he said. You'll learn and you'll surrender yourself to it even under such conditions, especially under such conditions. That's its value. That makes it patience. Yes, I guess I'm learning now, I said, right now. Brother, he said dryly, you have no idea how much you're learning. Please sit down. All right. I said, sitting down again. But while ignoring my personal education for a second, I'd like you to remember that the people have little patience with us these days. We could use this time more profitably. And I could tell you that politicians are not personal persons, Brother Jack said, but I won't. How could we use it more profitably? By organizing their anger. So again, our great tactician has relieved himself. Today, he is a busy man. First an oration over the body of Brutus, and now a lecture on the patience of the Negro people. Tobit was enjoying himself. I could see his cigarette trembling in his lips as he struck a match to light it. I move we issue his remarks in a pamphlet, he said, running his finger over his chin. They should create a natural phenomenon. This had better stop right here, I thought. My head was getting lighter and my chest felt tight. Look, I said, an unarmed man was killed, a brother a leading member shot down by a policeman. We had lost our prestige in the community. I saw the chance to rally the people, so I acted. If that was incorrect, then I did wrong. So say it straight without this crap. It'll take more than sarcasm to deal with the crowd out there. Brother Jack reddened. The others exchanged glances. He hasn't read the newspapers, someone said. You forget, Brother Jack said. It wasn't necessary. He was there. Yes, I was there, I said, if you're referring to the killing. There, you see, Brother Jack said, he was on the scene. Brother Tobit pushed the table edge with his palms. And still you organized that sideshow of a funeral. My nose twitched. I turned to him deliberately, forcing a grin. How could there be a sideshow without you as the star attraction? who draw the two bits? Admission, Brother Two Bits. What was wrong with the funeral? Now we're making progress, Brother Jack said, straddling his chair. The strategist has raised a very interesting question. What's wrong, he asks. All right, I'll answer. Under your leadership, a traitorous merchant of vile instruments of anti-Negro, anti-minority racist bigotry has received the funeral of a hero. Do you still ask what's wrong? But nothing was done about a traitor, I said. He half stood gripping the back of his chair. We all heard you admit it. We dramatized the shooting down of an unarmed black man. He threw up his hands. To hell with you, I thought. To hell with you. He was a man. That black man, as you call him, was a traitor, Brother Jack said. A traitor. What is a traitor, brother, I asked, feeling an angry amusement as I counted on my fingers. He was a man and a negro, a man and a brother, a man and a traitor, as you say. Then he was a dead man, and alive or dead he was jam full of contradictions, so full that he attracted half of Harlem to come out and stand in the sun in answer to our call. So what is a traitor? So now he retreats, Brother Jack said. Observe him, brothers. After putting the movement in the position of forcing a traitor down the throats of the Negroes, he asks what a traitor is. Yes, I said, yes. And as you say, it's a fair question, brother. Some folks call me a traitor because I've been working downtown. Some would call me a traitor if I was in civil service, and others if I simply sat in my corner and kept quiet. Sure, I considered what Clifton did, and you defend him. Not for that. I was as disgusted as you. But hell, isn't the shooting of an unarmed man of more importance politically than the fact that he sold obscene dolls? So you exercised your personal responsibility, Jack said. That's all I had to go on. I wasn't called to the strategy meeting, remember? Didn't you see what you were playing with, Tobit said? Have you no respect for your people? It was a dangerous mistake to give you the opportunity, one of the others said. I looked across at him. The committee can take it away if it wishes, but meantime, why is everyone so upset? If even one-tenth of the people looked at the dolls as we do, our work would be a lot easier. The dolls are nothing. Nothing, Jack said. That nothing might explode in our face. I sighed. Your faces are safe, brother, I said. Can't you see that they don't think in such abstract terms? If they did, perhaps the new program wouldn't have flopped. The Brotherhood isn't the Negro people. No organization is. All you see in Clifton's death is that it might harm the prestige of the Brotherhood. You see him only as a traitor, but Harlem doesn't react that way. Now he's lecturing us on the conditioned reflexes of the Negro people, Tobit said. I looked at him. I was very tired. And what is the source of your great contributions to the movement, brother? "'A career in burlesque and of your profound knowledge of Negroes? "'Are you from an old plantation-owning family? "'Does your black mammy shuffle nightly through your dreams?' "'He opened his mouth and closed it like a fish. "'I'll have you know that I'm married to a fine, intelligent Negro girl,' he said. "'So that's what makes you so cocky,' I thought, "'seeing now how the light struck him at an angle "'and made a wedged-shaped shadow beneath his nose. "'So that's it. "'And how did I guess there was a woman in it? "'Brother, I apologize,' I said. "'I misjudged you. "'You have our number. "'In fact, you must be practically a negro yourself. "'Was it by immersion or injection?' Now, see here, he said, pushing back his chair. Come on, I thought, just make a move, just another little move. Brothers, Jack said, his eyes on me, let's stick to the discussion. I'm intrigued, you were saying? I watched Tobit. He glared. I grinned. I was saying that up here, we know that the policeman didn't care about Clifton's ideas. He was shot because he was black and because he resisted, mainly because he was black. Brother Jack frowned. You're riding race again. But how do they feel about the dolls? I'm riding the race I'm forced to ride, I said. And as for the dolls, they know that as far as the cops are concerned, Clifford could have been selling song sheets, Bibles, matzes. If he had been white, he'd be alive. Or if he'd accepted being pushed around, black and white, white and black, Tobit said, must we listen to this racist nonsense? You don't, Brother Negro, I said. You get your own information straight from the source. Is it a mulatto source, brother? Oh, Don't answer. The only thing wrong is that your source is too narrow. You don't really think that crowd turned out today because Clifton was a member of the Brotherhood. And why did they turn out? Jack said, getting set as if to pounce forward. Because we gave them the opportunity to express their feelings, to affirm themselves. Brother Jack rubbed his eye. Do you know that you have become quite a theoretician, he said? You astound me. I doubt that, brother, but there's nothing like isolating a man to make him think, I said. Yes, that's true. Some of our best ideas have been thought in prison. Only you haven't been in prison, brother, and you were not hired to think. Had you forgotten that? If so, listen to me. You were not hired to think. He was speaking very deliberately, and I thought, so. So here it is, naked naked. And old and rotten. So now it's out in the open. So now I know where I am, I said. And with whom? Don't twist my meaning. For all of us, the committee does the thinking. For all of us. And you were hired to talk. That's right. I was hired. Things have been so brotherly I'd forgotten my place. But what if I wish to express an idea? We furnish all ideas. We have some acute ones. Ideas are part of our apparatus. Only the correct ideas for the correct occasion. And suppose you misjudge the occasion. Should that ever happen, you keep quiet. Even though I am correct, you say nothing unless it is passed by the committee. Otherwise, I suggest you keep saying the last thing you were told. And when my people demand that I speak, the committee will have an answer. I looked at him. The room was hot, quiet, smoky. The others looked at me strangely. I heard the nervous sound of someone mashing out a cigarette in a glass ashtray. I pushed back my chair, breathing deeply, controlled. I was on a dangerous road, and I thought of Clifton and tried to get off of it. I said nothing. Suddenly Jack smiled and slipped back into his fatherly role. Let us handle the theory. And the business of strategy, he said, we're experienced. We're graduates, and while you are a smart beginner, you skipped several grades. But they were important grades, especially for gaining strategical knowledge. For such, it is necessary to see the overall picture. More is involved than meets the eye. With the long view and the short view and the overall view mastered, Perhaps you won't slander the political consciousness of the people of Harlem. Can't he see I'm trying to tell them what's real, I thought? Does my membership stop me from feeling Harlem? All right, I said. Have it your way, brother. Only the political consciousness of Harlem is exactly a thing I know something about. That's one class they wouldn't let me skip. I'm describing a part of reality which I know... And that is the most questionable statement of all, Tobit said. I know, I said, running my thumb along the edge of the table. Your private source tells you differently. History's made at night, eh, brother? I warn you, Tobit said. Brother to brother, brother, I said. Try getting around more. You might learn that today was the first time that they've listened to our appeals in weeks. And I'll tell you something else. If we don't follow through on what was done today, this might be the last so he's finally gotten around to predicting the future brother jack said it's possible though i hope not he's in touch with god tobit said the black god i looked at him and grinned he had gray eyes and his irises were very wide the muscles ridged out on his jaws i had his guard down and he was swinging wild not with God, nor with your wife, brother, I told him. I've never met either, but I've worked with the people up here. Ask your wife to take you around to the gin mills, and the barber shops, and the juke joints, and the churches, brother. Yes, the beauty parlors on Saturdays, when they're frying hair. A whole unrecorded history is spoken then, brother. You wouldn't believe it, but it's true. Tell her to take you to stand in the areaway of a cheap tenement at night, and listen to what is said. Put her on the corner. Let her tell you what's being put down. You'll learn that a lot of people are angry because we failed to lead them in action. I'll stand on that as I stand on what I see and feel and on what I've heard and what I know. No, Brother Jack said, getting to his feet. You'll stand on the decision of the committee. We've had enough of this. The committee makes your decisions, and it is not its practice to give undue importance to the mistaken notions of the people. What's happened to your discipline? I'm not arguing against discipline. I'm trying to be useful. I'm trying to point out a part of reality which the committee seems to have missed. With just one demonstration, we could... The committee has decided against such demonstrations, Brother Jack said. Such methods are no longer effective. Something seemed to move out from under me. And out of the corner of my eye, I was suddenly aware of objects on the dark side of the hall... But didn't anyone see what happened today, I said? What was that, a a dream? What was ineffective about that crowd? Such crowds are only our raw materials, one of the raw materials to be shaped to our program. I looked around the table and shook my head. No wonder they insult me and accuse us of betraying them. There was a sudden movement. Repeat that, Brother Jack shouted, stepping forward. It's true. I'll repeat it. Until this afternoon, they've been saying that the Brotherhood betrayed them. I'm telling you what's been said to me, and that is why Brother Clifton disappeared. That's an indefensible lie, Brother Jack said. And I looked at him slowly, now thinking, if this is it, this is it. Don't call me that, I said softly. Don't ever call me that. None of you. I've told you what I've heard. My hand was in my pocket now, Brother Tarp's leg chain around my knuckles. I looked at each of them individually, trying to hold myself back and yet feeling it getting away from me. My head was whirling as though I were riding a supersonic merry-go-round. Jack looked at me, a new interest behind his eyes, leaned forward. So you've heard it, he said. Very well. So now hear this. We do not shape our policies to the mistaken and infantile notions of the man in the street, Our job is not to ask them what they think, but to tell them. You've said that, I said, and that's the one thing you can tell them yourself. Who are you, anyway? The great white father? Not their father, their leader, and your leader, and don't forget it. My leader, sure, but what's your exact relationship to them? His red head bristled. The leader. As leader of the Brotherhood, I am their leader. But are you sure you aren't their great white father? I said, watching him closely aware of the hot silence and feeling tension race from my toes to my legs as I drew my feet quickly beneath me. Wouldn't it be better if they called you Massa Jack? Now see here, he began, leaping to his feet to lean across the table, and I spun my chair half around on its hind legs as he came between me and the light, gripping the edge of the table, spluttering and lapsing into a foreign language, choking and coughing and shaking his head as I, balanced on my toes now, set to propel myself forward, seeing him above me and the others behind him, as suddenly something seemed to erupt out of his face. You're seeing things, I thought. Hearing it strike sharply against the table and roll as his arm shot out and snatched an object the size of a large marble and dropped it, plop, into his glass. And I could see the water shooting up in a ragged, light-breaking pattern to spring in swift droplets across the oiled tabletop. The room seemed to flatten I shot to a high plateau above them and down, feeling the jolt on the end of my spine as the chair legs struck the floor. The merry-go-round had speeded up. I heard his voice but no longer listened. I stared at the glass, seeing how the light shone through, throwing a transparent, precisely fluted shadow against the dark grain of the table. And there, on the bottom of the glass, lay an eye. A glass eye. A buttermilk white eye distorted by the light rays. An eye, staring fixedly at me as from the dark waters of a well. Then I was looking at him standing above me, outlined by the light against the darkened half of the hall. You must accept discipline. Either you accept decisions or you get out. I stared into his face, feeling a sense of outrage. His left eye had collapsed, a line of raw redness showing where the lid refused to close, and his gaze had lost its command. I looked from his face to the glass, thinking, he's disemboweled himself just in order to confound me. And the others had known it all along. They aren't even surprised. I stared at the eye, aware of Jack pacing up and down, shouting. Brother, are you following me? He stopped, squinting at me with cyclopean irritation. What's the matter? I stared up at him, unable to answer. Then he understood and approached the table, smiling maliciously. So that's it. So it makes you uncomfortable, does it? You're a sentimentalist, he said, sweeping up the glass and causing the eye to turn over in the water so that now it seemed to peer down at me from the ringed bottom of the glass. He smiled, holding the tumbler level with his empty socket swirling the glass. You didn't know about this. No, and I didn't want to know. Someone laughed. See, that demonstrates how long you've been with us, he lowered the glass. I lost my eye in the line of duty. What do you think of that? He said with a pride that made me all the angrier. I don't give a damn how you lost it as long as you keep it hidden. That is because you don't appreciate the meaning of sacrifice. I was ordered to carry through an objective, and I carried it through, understand, even though I had to lose my eye to do it. He was gloating now, holding up the eye in the glass as though it were a a medal of merit. Not much like that traitor Clifton, is it, Tobit said. The others were amused. All right, I said, all right. It was a heroic act. It saved the world. Now hide the bleeding wound. Don't overevaluate it, Jack said quieter now. The heroes are those who die. This was nothing. After it happened, a minor lesson in discipline. And do you know what discipline is? Brother, personal responsibility. It's sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. He slammed the glass upon the table, splashing the water on the back of my hand. I shook like a leaf. So that is the meaning of discipline, I thought. Sacrifice. Yes, and blindness. <sighs> he doesn't see me. He doesn't even see me. A- am I about to strangle him? Mm, I don't know. He cannot possibly. I-, I still do not know. See! Discipline is sacrifice, yes, and blindness, yes, and me sitting here while he tries to intimidate me. That's it, with his goddamn blind glass eye. <laughs> "'Should you show him you get it, shouldn't you? "'Shouldn't he know it, hurry, shouldn't you? "'Look at it there, a good job, "'an almost perfect imitation that seemed alive. "'Should you, shouldn't you? "'Maybe he got it where he learned that language he lapsed into, "'shouldn't you, make him speak the unknown tongue, "'the language of the future?' What's mattering with you? Discipline is learning, didn't he say? Is it? I stand. You're sitting here, ain't I? You're holding on, ain't I? He said you'd learn, so you're learning. So he saw it all the time. He's a Riddler. Shouldn't we show him? So, sit still is the way. And learn, never mind the eye. It's dead. All right, now look at him. See him turning now, left, right? Coming short-legged toward you, see him. Hep, hep, the one-eyed beacon. All right, all right. Hep, hep, short-legged deacon. All right, nail him. Short-changing dialectical deacon. All right. There, so now you're learning. Get it under control. Patience. Yes. I looked at him again as for the first time seeing a little bantam rooster of a man with a high-domed forehead and a raw eye socket that wouldn't quite accept its lid. I looked at him carefully now with some of the red spots fading and with the feeling that I was just awakening from a dream. I had boomeranged around... I realize how you feel, he said, becoming an actor who just finished a part in a play and was speaking again in his natural voice. I remember the first time I saw myself this way, and it wasn't pleasant. And don't think I wouldn't rather have my old one back. He felt in the water for his eye now, and I could see its smooth, half-spherical, half-amorphous form slip between his two fingers and spurt around the glass as though looking for a way to break out. Then he had it shaking off the water and breathing a pardon as he walked across to the dark side of the room. But who knows, brothers, he said, with his back turned. Perhaps if we do our work successfully, the new society will provide me with a living eye. Such a thing is not at all fantastic, although I've been without mine for quite a while. What time is it, by the way? But what kind of society will make him see me, I thought, Hearing Tobin answer, 6.15. Then we'd better leave immediately. We've got a long way to travel, he said, coming across the floor. He had his eye in place now, and he was smiling. How's that? he asked me. I nodded. I was very tired. I simply nodded. Good, he said. I sincerely hope it never happens to you. Sincerely. If it should, maybe you'll recommend me to your oculist, I said. Then I may not see myself as others see me not. He looked at me oddly, then laughed. (sighs) (laughs) Ha 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 ha! See, brothers, he's joking. He feels brotherly again. But just the same, I hope you'll never need one of these. Meanwhile, go and see Hambro. He'll outline the programme and give you the instructions. As for today, just let things float. It is a development that is important only if we make it so. Otherwise, it will be forgotten. He said, getting into his jacket, and you'll see that it's best. The Brotherhood must act as a coordinated unit. I looked at him. I was becoming aware of smells again, and I needed a bath. The others were standing now and moving toward the door. I stood up, feeling the shirt stick to my back. One last thing, Jack said, placing his hand on my shoulder and speaking quietly. Watch that temper. That's discipline, too. Learn to demolish your brotherly opponents with ideas, with polemical skill, The other is for our enemies. Save it for them. And go and get some rest. I was beginning to tremble. His face seemed to advance and recede, recede and advance. He shook his head and smiled grimly. I know how you feel, he said, and it's too bad all that effort was for nothing. But that in itself is a kind of discipline. I speak to you of what I've learned, and I'm a great deal older than you. Good night. I looked at his eye, so he knows how I feel. Which eye is really the blind one? Good night, I said. Good night, brother, they all, except Tobit said. It'll be night, but it won't be good, I thought, calling a final. Good night. They left, and I took my jacket and went and sat at my desk. I heard them passing down the stairs and the closing of the door below. I felt as though I'd been watching a bad comedy, only it was real and I was living it. And it was the only historically meaningful life that I could live. If I left it, I'd be nowhere, as dead and as meaningless as Clifton. I felt for the doll in the shadow and dropped it on the desk. He was dead, all right, and nothing would come of his death now. He was useless even for a scavenger action. He had waited too long. The directives had changed on him. He'd barely gotten by with a funeral. And that was all. It was only a matter of a few days, but he had missed and there was nothing I could do. But at least he was dead and out of it. I sat there a while growing wilder and fighting against it. I couldn't leave and I had to keep contact in order to fight. But I would never be the same, never. After tonight, I wouldn't ever look the same or feel the same. Just what I'd be, I didn't know. I couldn't go back to what I was, which wasn't much, but I'd lost too much to be what I was. Some of me, too, had died with Todd Clifton. So I would see Hambro for whatever it was worth. I got up and went out into the hall. The glass was still on the table, and I swept it across the room, hearing it rumble and roll in the dark and I went downstairs. The bar downstairs was hot and crowded, and there was a heated argument in progress over Clifton's shooting. I stood near the door and ordered a bourbon. Then someone noticed me, and they tried to draw me in. Please. Not tonight, I said. He was one of my best friends. Oh, sure, they said. And I had another bourbon and left. When I reached 125th Street... I was approached by a group of Civil Liberties workers circulating a petition demanding the dismissal of the guilty policeman. And a block further on, even the familiar woman street preacher was shouting a sermon about the slaughter of the innocents. A much broader group was stirred up over the shooting than I had imagined. Good, I thought. Perhaps it won't die down after all. Maybe I'd better see Hambro tonight. Little groups were all along the street, and I moved with increasing speed until suddenly I had reached 7th Avenue, and there beneath a street lamp with the largest crowd around him was Ross the Exhorter, the last man in the world I wanted to see. And I just turned back when I saw him lean down between his flags shouting, Look, look, black ladies and gentlemen. There goes the representative of the Brotherhood. Does Ross see correctly? Is that gentleman trying to pass us unnoticed? Ask him about it. What are your people waiting for, sir? What are you doing about your black youth shot down because of your deceitful organization? They turned, looking at me, closing in. Some came up behind me and tried to push me further into the crowd. The exhorter leaned down, pointing at me beneath the green traffic light. Ask him what they are doing about it, ladies and gentlemen. Are they afraid? Or are the white folks and their black stooges sticking together to betray us? Get your hands off me, I shouted as someone reached around and seized my arm. I heard a voice cursing me softly. ''Give the brother a chance to answer,'' someone said. Their faces pressed in upon me. I wanted to laugh, for suddenly I realized that I didn't know whether I had been part of a sellout or not. But they were in no mood for laughter. ''Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters,'' I said, ''I disdain to answer such an attack. Since you all know me and my work, I don't think it's necessary.'' but it seems highly dishonorable to use the unfortunate death of one of our most promising young men as an excuse for attacking an organization that has worked to bring an end to such outrages. Who was the first organization to act against this killing? The Brotherhood. Who was the first to arouse the people? The Brotherhood. Who will always be the first to advance the cause of the people? Again, the Brotherhood. We acted and we shall always act, I assure you but in our own disciplined way, and we will act positively. We refuse to waste our energy and yours in premature and ill-considered actions. We are Americans, all of us, whether black or white, regardless of what the man on the ladder there tells you, Americans. And we leave it to the gentleman up there to abuse the name of the dead. The Brotherhood grieves and feels deeply the loss of its brother, and we are determined that his death shall be the beginning of profound and lasting changes. It's easy enough to wait around for the minute a man is safely buried and then stand on a ladder and smear the memory of everything he believed in. But to create something lasting of his death takes time and careful planning. Gentlemen, Rush shouted, stick to the issue. You're not answering my question. What are you doing about the shooting? I moved toward the edge of the crowd. If this went any further, it could be disastrous. Stop abusing the dead for your own selfish ends, I said. Let him rest in peace. Quit mangling his corpse. I pushed away as he raged, hearing shouts of, Tell him about it, grave robber! The exhorter waved his arms and pointed, shouting, That man is a paid stooge of the white enslaver. Where has he been for the last few months when our black babies and women have been suffering? Let the dead rest in peace, I shouted, hearing someone call. Oh, man, go back to Africa. Everybody knows the brother. Good, I thought. Good. Then there was a scuffle behind me, and I whirled to see two men stop short. They were Ross's men. Listen, mister, I said up to him. If you know what's good for you, you'll call off your goons. Two of them seem to want to follow me. And that is a damn lie, he shouted. There are witnesses if anything should happen to me. A man who'll dig up the dead hardly before he's buried will try anything. But I warn you, there were angry shouts from some of the crowd, and I saw the men continue past me with hate in their eyes, leaving the crowd to disappear around the corner. Ross was attacking the Brotherhood now, and others were answering him from the audience. And I went on, moving back toward Lennox, moving past a movie house when they grabbed me and started punching me. But this time they picked the wrong spot, and the movie doorman intervened, and they ran back toward Ross's street meeting. I thanked the doorman and went on. I had been lucky. They hadn't hurt me, but Ross was becoming bold again. On a less crowded street, they might have done some damage. Reaching the avenue, I stepped to the curb and signaled a cab, seeing it sail by. An ambulance went past, then another cab with its flag down. I looked back. I felt that they were watching me from somewhere up the street, but I couldn't see them. Why didn't a taxi come? Then three men in natty, cream-colored summer suits came to stand near me at the curb, and something about them struck me like a hammer. They were all wearing dark glasses. I had seen it thousands of times, but suddenly, what I had considered an empty imitation of a Hollywood fad was flooded with personal significance. Why not, I thought, why not? And shot across the street and into the air-conditioned chill of a drugstore. I saw them on a case strewn with sun visors, hair nets, rubber gloves, a card of false eyelashes, and seized the darkest lenses I could find. They were of a green glass, so dark that it appeared black. And I put them on immediately, plunging into blackness and moving outside. I could barely see. It was almost dark now, and the streets swarmed in a green vagueness. I moved slowly across to stand near the subway and wait for my eyes to adjust. A strange wave of excitement boiled within me as I peered out at the sinister light. And now through the hot gusts from the underground, people were emerging and I could feel the trains vibrating the walk. A cab rolled up to discharge a passenger, and I was about to take it when the woman came up the stairs and stopped before me smiling. Now what, I thought, seeing her standing there, smiling in her tight-fitting summer dress, a large young woman who reeked with Christmas night perfume, who now came close. Reinhardt, baby, is that you? She said. Reinhardt, I thought. So it works. She had her hand on my arm, and faster than I thought, I heard myself answer, Is that you, baby? And waited with tense breath. Well, for once you're on time, she said. But what you doing, bareheaded, Where's your new hat I bought you? I wanted to laugh. The scent of Christmas night was enfolding me now when I saw her face draw closer, her eyes widening. Say, you ain't Reinhardt, man. What you trying to do? You don't even talk like Ryan. What's your story? I laughed, backing away. <laughs> well, I-, I guess we were both mistaken, I said. She stepped backward, clutching her bag, watching me, confused. I, I really meant no harm, I said. I'm sorry. Who is it you mistook me for? Reinhardt, and you better not let him catch you pretending to be him. No, I said, but, um... You seem so pleased to see him that I couldn't resist it. He's really a lucky man. And I could have sworn you was, man, you get away from here before you get me in trouble, she said, moving aside, and I left. It was very strange. But that about the hat was a good idea, I thought, hurrying along now and looking out for Ross's men. I was wasting time. At the first hat shop, I went in and bought the widest hat in stock and put it on. With this, I thought, I should be seen even in a snowstorm. Only they'd think I was someone else. Then I was back in the street and moving toward the subway. My eyes adjusted quickly. The world took on a dark green intensity. The lights of cars glowed like stars. Faces were a mysterious blur. The garish signs of movie houses muted down to a soft, sinister glowing. I headed back to Ross's meeting with a bold swagger. This is the real test. If it worked, I would go on to Hambrose without further trouble. In the angry period to come, I would be able to move about. A couple of men approached, eating up the walk with long, jaunty strides that caused their heavy silk sport shirts to flounce rhythmically upon their bodies. They, too, wore dark glasses. Their hats were set high upon their heads. The brims turned down. A couple of hipsters, I thought, just as they spoke. What you saying, Daddy-o? they said. Reinhard, Papa, tell us what you're putting down, they said. "Oh Hell, probably his friends, I thought, waving and, and moving on. We know what you doin', doing, Reinhard, one of them called. Play it cool, old man, play it cool. I waved again as though in on the joke. They laughed behind me. I was nearing the end of the block now, wet with sweat. Who was this Reinhard and what was he putting down? I'd have to learn more about him to avoid further misidentifications. A car passed with its radio blaring. Ahead I could hear the exhorter barking harshly to the crowd. Then I was moving close and coming to a stop conspicuously in the space left for pedestrians to pass through the crowd. To the rear they were lined up too deep before the store windows. Before me the listeners merged in a green-tinted gloom. The exhorter gestured violently, blasting the Brotherhood. The time for auction is here, We must chase them out of Harlem, he cried. And for a second I thought he had caught me in the sweep of his eyes and tensed. Ross said chase them. It is time Ross the Exhorter become Ross the Destroyer. Shouts of agreement arose and I looked behind me, seeing the men who had followed me and thinking, what did he mean, Destroyer? I repeat, black ladies and gentlemen, the time has come for action. I, Ross the Destroyer, repeat, the time has come. I trembled with excitement. They hadn't recognized me. It works, I thought. They see the hat, not me. There is a a magic in it. It hides me right in front of their eyes. But suddenly I wasn't sure. With Ross calling for the destruction of everything white in Harlem, who could notice me? I needed a better test. If I was to carry out my plan... What plan? H- hell, I don't know. Come on. I weaved out of the crowd and left, heading for Hambros. A group of zoot suitors greeted me in passing. Hey, hey now, Daddy Yo, they call. Hey, 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 hey now. Hey, hey, hey now, I said. It was as though by dressing and walking in a certain way, I had enlisted in a fraternity in which I was recognized at a glance. Not by features, but by clothes, by uniform, by gait, but this gave rise to another uncertainty. I was not a zoot suitor, but a kind of politician. Or was I? What would happen in a real test? What about the fellows who'd been insulting at the Jolly Dollar? I was halfway across 8th Avenue at the thought and retraced my steps, running for an uptown bus. There were many of the regular customers draped around the bar. The room was crowded and Barrel House was on duty. I could feel the frame of the glasses cutting into the ridge of my nose as I tilted my hat and squeezed up to the bar. Barrelhouse looked at me roughly, his lips pushed out. What brand you drinkin' tonight, Papa Stopper, he said. Make it Ballantines," I said in my natural voice. I watched his eyes as he set the beer before me and slapped the bar with his enormous hand for his money. Then, my heart beating faster, I made my old gesture of payment spinning the coin upon the bar and waited. The coin disappeared into his fist. Thanks, Pops, he said, moving on and leaving me puzzled. For there had been recognition of a kind in his voice, but not for me. He never called me Pops or Papa Stopper. It's working, I thought, perhaps. It's working very well. Certainly something was working on me, and, and profoundly. Still, I was relieved it was hot. Perhaps that was it. I drank the cold beer, looking back to the rear of the room, to the booths. A crowd of men and women moiled like nightmare figures in the smoke-green haze. The jukebox was dinning, and it was like looking into the depths of a murky cave. And now someone moved aside, and looking down along the curve of the bar, past the bobbing heads and shoulders, I saw the jukebox, lit up like a bad dream of the fiery furnace, shouting, Jelly, 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 all night long. And yet, I thought watching a numbers runner paying off a bet, This is one place that the Brotherhood definitely penetrated. Let Hambro explain that, too, along with all the rest he'd have to explain. I drained the glass and turned to leave when there across the lunch counter I saw Brother Maceo. I moved impulsively, forgetting my disguise, until almost upon him then checked myself and put my disguise once more to a test. Reaching roughly across his shoulder, I picked up a greasy menu that rested between the sugar shaker and the hot sauce bottle and pretended to read it through my dark glasses. How the ribs, Pops, I said? Fine, at least these here I'm eating is. Yeah? How much you know about ribs? He raised his head slowly, looking across at the spitted chickens revolving before the low blue rotisserie flames. I reckon I know as much about them as you, he said, and probably more, since I've probably been eating them a few years longer than you and in a few more places. What makes you think you can come in here messing with me anyhow? He turned, looking straight into my face, now challenging me. He was very game, and I wanted to laugh. Oh, take it easy, I growled. A man can ask a question, can he? You got your answer, he said, turning completely around on the stool. So now I guess you ready to pull your knife. Knife, I said, wanting to laugh. Who said anything about a knife? That's what you're thinking about. Somebody say something that you don't like, and you kind of fellas pull your switch, So all right, go ahead and pull it. I'm as ready to die as I'm going ever be. Let's see you. Go ahead. He reached for the sugar shaker now, and I stood there feeling suddenly that the old man before me was not Brother Maceo at all, but someone else disguised to confuse me. The glasses were working too well. He's a game, old brother, I thought. But this'll never do. I pointed toward his plate. I asked you about the ribs, I said. Not your ribs. Who said anything about a knife?
1: Never mind that.
0: Just go on and pull it, he said. Let's see you. Or is you waiting for me to turn my back? All right, here it is. Here's my back, he said, turning swiftly on the stool and around again, his arms set to throw the shaker. Customers were turning to look, were moving clear. What's the matter, Maceo? Someone said. Nothing I can't handle. This confidence in son of a bitch coming here bluffing. You take it easy, old man, I said. Don't let your mouth get your head in trouble thinking, why am I talking like this? You don't have to worry about that, son of a bitch. Pull your switchblade. Give it to him, Maceo. Cool, crack that mother fowler. I marked the position of the voice by ear now, turning so that I could see Maceo, the agitator, and the customers blocking the door. Even the jukebox had stopped, and I could feel the danger mounting so swiftly that I moved without thinking, bounding over quickly and sweeping up a beer bottle, my body trembling. All right, I said. If that's the way you want it, all right. The next one who talks out of turn gets this. Maceo moved, and I fainted with the bottle. Seeing him dodge, his arm set to throw, and held only because I was crowding him. A dark old man in overalls and a gray, long-billed cloth cap who looked dreamlike through the green glasses. Throw it, I said. Go on, overcome with the madness of the thing. Here I'd set out to test a disguise on a friend, and now I was ready to beat him to his knees, not because I wanted to, but because of place and circumstance. Okay, okay, it was absurd and yet real and dangerous, and if he moved, I'd let him have it as brutally as possible. To protect myself, I'd have to, or the drunks would gang me. Miseo was set, looking at me coldly, and suddenly I heard a voice boom out, Ain't gonna be no fighting in my joint. It was Barrelhouse. Put them things down, y'all. They cost money. Hell, Barrelhouse, House, let them fight. They can fight in the streets, not in here. Hey, y'all, he called. Look over here. I saw him now, leaning forward with a pistol in his huge fist, resting it steady upon the bar. Now put him down, y'all, he said mournfully. I done ask you to put my property down. Brother Maceo looked from me to Barrel House. Put it down, old man, I said, thinking, why am I acting from pride when this is not really me? You put y'all down, he said. Both y'all put them down. ''And you, Reinhardt?'' Barrelhouse said, gesturing at me with the pistol. ''You get out of my joint and stay out.
1: We don't need
0: your money in here.'' I started to protest, but he held up his palm. ''Now, you all right with me, Reinhardt, don't get me wrong, but I just can't stand trouble,'' Barrelhouse said. Brother Maceo had replaced the shaker now, and I put my bottle down and backed to the door. ''And, Reinhardt?'' Barrelhouse said, ''don't try to pull no pistol neither, because this here one is loaded and I got a permit.'' back to the door, my scalp prickling, watching them both. Next time, don't ask no questions you don't want answered, Maceo called. And if you ever want to finish this argument, I'll be right here. I felt the outside air explode around me, and I stood just beyond the door laughing with the sudden relief of the joke restored. Looking back at the defiant old man in his long-billed cap and the confounded eyes of the crowd. Reinhardt? "'Reinhardt?' I thought, "'What kind of man is Reinhardt?' "'I was still chuckling when, in the next block, "'I waited for the traffic lights near a group of men "'who stood on the corner, passing a bottle of cheap wine between them "'as they discussed Clifton's murder. "'What well, we, well, we need is some guns,' one of them said. "'An eye for an eye. "'Hell, yes, machine guns. "'Pass me the sneaky peep, "'Wasn't for that Sullivan law, this here in New York wouldn't be nothing but a shooting gallery,' another man said. "'Here's the Stinky Pete and don't try to find no home in that bottle.' "'It's the only home I got, Muckle Roy. You want to take that away from me? "'Man, drink up and pass the damn bottle.' "'I started around them, hearing one of them say, "'What you saying, Mr. Ryan huh? How's your hammer hanging?' "'Even up here I thought, beginning to hurry.' "'Heavy, man,' I said, knowing the answer to that one. "'Very heavy,' they laughed. "'Well, it'll be lighter by morning. (laughs) "'Say, looky here, Mr. Reinhardt, how about giving me a job?' "'One of them said, approaching me, and I waved and crossed the street, "'walking rapidly down 8th toward the next bus stop. "'The shops and groceries were dark now, "'and children were running and yelling along the walks, "'dodging in and out among the adults.' I walked, struck by the merging fluidity of forms seen through the lenses. Could this be the way the world appeared to Reinhardt? All the dark glass boys? For now we see as through a glass darkly, but then. But then. I couldn't remember the rest. She was carrying a shopping bag and moved gingerly on her feet. Until she touched my arm, I thought that she was talking to herself. I say, uh, pardon me, son, look like you're trying to pass on by me tonight. What's the final figure? Figure? What figure? Now you know what I mean, she said, her voice rising as she put her hands on her hips and looked forward. I mean today's last number. Ain't you Ryan the Runner? Ryan the Runner? Yes, Reinhardt, the number man. Who you trying to fool? But that's not my name, madam, I said, uh, speaking as precisely as I could, stepping away from her. You've made a mistake. Her mouth fell wide. You ain't? Well, why, you look so much like him, she said with hot doubt in her voice. Now, ain't this here something? Let me go on home. If my dream come out, I'm going to have to look that rascal up. And here I needs that money, too. I hope you won, I said, straining to see her clearly. And I hope he pays off. Thanks, son, but but he'll pay off all right. I can see you ain't Reinhardt now, though. I'm sorry for stopping you. It's all right, I said. If I'd looked at your shoes, I would have known. Why? Because Ryan the Run is known for them knob-toed kind. I watched her limp away, rocking like the old ship of Zion. No wonder everyone knows him, I thought. In that racket, you have to get around. I was aware of my black and white shoes for the first time since the day of Clifton's shooting when the squad car veered close to the curb and rolled along slowly beside me. I knew what was coming before the cop opened his mouth. That you, Reinhardt, my man? The cop, who was not driving, said. He was white. I could see the shield gleaming on his cap, but the number was vague. Not this time, officer, I said. The hell you say? What are you trying to pull? Is this a a holdout? You're making a mistake, I said. I'm not, Reinhardt. The car stopped. A flashlight beamed in my green-lensed eyes. He spat into the street. Well, you better be by morning, he said, and you better have our cut in the regular place. Who the hell you think you are, he called as the car speeded up in away. And before I could turn, a crowd of men ran up from the corner pool hall. One of them carried an automatic in his hand. What were you sons of bitches trying to do to you, Daddy? He said. It was nothing. They, they thought I was someone else.
1: Who'd they take you for?
0: I looked at them. Were they criminals or simply men who who were worked up over the shooting? Some guy named Reinhardt, I said. Reinhardt? <laughs> hey, y'all hear that? Snorted the fellow with the gun. Reinhardt, them patties must be going stone blind. <laughs> Anybody can see you ain't Reinhardt. But he do look like Reinhardt, another man said, staring at me with his hands in his trousers' pockets. Like hell he does. Hell, man, Reinhardt will be driving that Cadillac this time of night. What the hell you talking about? Listen, Jack, the fellow with the gun said, don't let nobody make you act like Reinhardt. You got to have a smooth tongue, a heartless heart, and be ready to do anything. If them patties bother you again, just let us know. We aim to stop some of this head-whooping they've been doing. Sure, I said. Reinhardt, he said. (laughs) Ain't that a bitch. They turned and went arguing back to the pool hall, and I hurried out of the neighborhood. Having forgotten Hambro for the moment, I walked east instead of west. I wanted to remove the glasses, but decided against it. Ross's men might still be on the prowl. It was quieter now. No one paid me any special attention, although the street was alive with pedestrians, all moiling along in the mysterious tint of green. Perhaps I'm out of his territory at last, I thought, and began trying to place Reinhardt in the scheme of things. He's been around all the while, but I've been looking in another direction. He was around and others like him, but I had looked past him until Clifton's death, or was it Ross, had made me aware. What on earth was hiding behind the face of things? If dark glasses and a white hat could blot out my identity so quickly, who actually was who? The perfume was exotic and seemed to roll up the walk behind me as I became aware of a woman strolling casually behind me. I've been waiting for you to recognize me, Daddy, the voice said. I've been waiting for you a long time. It was a pleasant voice with a slightly husky edge and plenty of sleep in it. Don't you hear me, Daddy, she said. And I started to look around hearing, no, Daddy, don't look back. My old man might be cold trailing me. Just walk along beside me while I tell you where to meet me. I swear, I thought you'd never come. Will you be able to see me tonight? She had moved close to me now, and suddenly I felt a hand fumbling at my jacket pocket. All right, Daddy. You don't have to jump evil on me. Here it is. Now will you see me? I stopped dead, grabbing her hand and looking at her, an exotic girl even through the green glasses, looking at me with a smile that suddenly broke. Reinhardt, Daddy, what's the matter? So here it goes again, I thought, holding her tightly. I'm not Reinhardt, miss, I said, and for the first time tonight, I'm truly sorry. But, Bliss, Daddy, Reinhard, you're not trying to put your baby down. Daddy, what did I do? She seized my arm and we were poised face to face in the middle of the walk, and suddenly she screamed, Oh, you really aren't, and me trying to give you his money. Get away from me, you dumb John, get away from me. I backed off. Her face was distorted as she stamped her high heels and screamed. Behind me, I heard someone say, Hey! What was that? Followed by the sound of running feet as I shot off and around the corner, away from her screams. That lovely girl, I thought. That lovely girl.
3: Context of white supremacy. That is where we will stop. So we're in chapter 23. Uh, again, I said... Uh, Joe Morton, who has done just a spectacular job with the narration, they do not give the chapter breaks. So you just have to kind of pay attention when you hear a significant pause. That's probably a chapter break. But we are still in chapter 23. This is a lengthy chapter. So when we pick back up the paragraph that we'll start on will be several blocks away. I stopped. Out of breath. That's the first sentence, and it just goes from there. Uh, he's about to see the sign, Holy Way Station, Behold the Living God. That should stand out uh, on the page, but chapter 23. Now, if you have uh, questions, comments, didn't understand something, feel free, dial in. Looking forward to what you thought of the first section. Number 641 715 3640. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. If you want to join the dialogue but you don't want to use your phone, you can use the free Vope line. It's linked at Black Talk Radio Network. The address tiny.cc forward slash one race, and that is the number one. The address again tiny t i n y dot C forward slash one race and that is the number one when you put in that address look on the left of the page you'll see the link for the free vote line click that link when you uh, click it it will open a new window on your screen the top line is a drop down menu select the number that I just gave out which again is six four one seven one five three six four zero next line it will ask for the code, that code again, 564943. Final line, it will ask for a name. You can put in a real name, nickname, random keys, whatever you're comfortable with. Uh, once you get all that information entered, click the green button at the bottom. It will connect you to the live broadcast. Same procedure if you would like to participate. You'll see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six one. I'll see your hand on the switchboard. We will add you to the conversation. Quick question. Gus should have lots of questions for this book because I've read it so many times. In this chapter, when they were having, when the narrator, protagonist, was having the conflict with the brotherhood, and they were talking about personal responsibility and discipline and all of that, but personal responsibility was said uh, a few times. Uh, What do you or does that relate in any way to all the way back beginning of the book at the Battle Royale when the narrator protagonist is giving his speech to a group of white men and he stumbles over saying... Social responsibility, he ends up saying social equality, which really uh, angers the racists in the room, but uh, he kept having to repeat it even before he messed up the words. Uh, They kept making him uh, say it over. Social responsibility. Is there any relationship at all between uh, social responsibility all the way back at the very beginning of the book and his spat with the brotherhood where personal responsibility keeps being mentioned? Folks who dialed in, uh, if you have a thought on that question, uh, or if you have your own comments, questions from the first audio segment, uh, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Proceed. Yes, may I be heard? Uh, Greetings, Mr. Demery Four.
4: Yes, greetings. Greetings, Gus. Uh, Greetings to other callers and listeners. Uh, My answer to the question, I think it does um, relate to, because I I took a note here, the personal individual responsibility. See, the Brotherhood wants, uh, they said they'll tell him what to think and what you know responsibility means and and him to feel some type of <clears throat> uh loyalty to the brotherhood rather than take on your own individual um agenda they'll tell you what to think and they'll tell you what to say and that's the way the system of white supremacy work so uh my comments on this reading was brother jack Um, and members of the uh, Brotherhood, which I uh, can probably replace with the system of white supremacy, was not happy with um, the uh, narrator's speech at the funeral. And then went so far as calling uh, Brother Todd Clifton a traitor. And uh, Brother Jack's got a glass eye, which is leading to Uh, I guess, partial blindness, you know, and his narrow-minded view of life itself, really, and uh, his commitment to the so-called brotherhood, which is, uh, I can replace with just a system of white supremacy. He's stressing discipline and patience. You know, if it wasn't, you know so close to reality it would be funny. But <clears throat> that seems to be what they're uh telling non white people. Just uh we've come a long way and uh just be patient. It takes time on it to get rid of this racism and to deal with it. So just be patient. Uh brother Jack um is Okay, he's expressing his dislike uh, to the um, sermon at the funeral and uh, discrediting the narrator, you know. And then he runs into uh, Brother Ross, uh, you know, speaking the truth and uh, telling him something that would probably happen. But he wants to go talk to Hambro who is just another extension of this uh, brotherhood and another telling him what he should be thinking and doing, but he's resisting Ross, you know, and it's kind of like, that's our plot, our plight here in America as black people. We don't hear the true message, but we constantly want to seek out some type of instructions for, you know, what we should do next thinking, you know, buying into the lies that uh agencies like the Brotherhood or the system of white supremacy uh tells us or put that little chip in our head the way we should think. The the same people that was victimizing him, you know, and talking about him, you know, he wants to uh seek instruction from. And uh the Brotherhood, he finds out later has a part in the numbers game. So it's a lot of suspicion surrounding the brotherhood, but he's still showing some dedication there. And I'll say about Reinhardt is, this is a funny part, when they were greeting each other and say, what you putting down, Reinhardt? Hey, hey, hey now. That reminded me of Mr. Neely Fuller with the Scooby-Doo, brother. Scooby Doo, and the hat that he was wearing it reminded me of the zapsters. You, you know, whatever it is at that time, that's what uh, we'll go for. Food was used as a cultural item. This week they're talking about ribs. I guess black people associated with barbecue ribs, but in my experience, white people eat more ribs than we do. And another funny. For he was talking to the woman he seems to be able to imitate and uh be an imposter better than he can find out who uh he really is so he's imitating round and he's talking to a female and then as she walks off he says uh, she walks away rolling like the ship of Zion." and he talks about uh it looked like uh, Maceo. Maceo. He interrupts Maceo, eating his ribs or whatever, and then later on calls Maceo to agitate. I'll mute my line on that, Gus, to so give somebody else a chance. Thanks for taking the call.
3: Much obliged, Brother Demery, for a great comparison to uh, Mr. Fuller. scoo, I think, is is the... Reply on that one uh, reminded me of Minister, well, prior to Minister Malcolm X, the hipster days of Detroit Red uh, and his time running around in Harlem uh, right there. They would have been the same time. I think by that point he had uh, turned things around uh, 1952. Yeah, he would have turned things around at that point. But yeah, they would have been in the same spot. uh, Ralph Ellison and Minister Malcolm X about the mid early 1950s. Other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, if you have commentary you would like to share, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir.
5: All right, uh, greetings, Gus, and uh, greetings to all the uh, callers and listeners. Uh, Gus, uh, can you repeat your question that you put out there?
3: Yes, sir. The question was in this week's audio segment. When the protagonist was having his disagreement with the Brotherhood, uh, the phrase personal responsibility was invoked. Does that have any relationship to all the way back at the very beginning of the book at the Battle Royale when the protagonist was giving his speech to the room of white men, racists, and... He kept having to repeat the word social responsibility. Uh, They kept making him say it over and over. uh, And in fact, he messed up and eventually said social equality, which really upset them. But is there any relationship social responsibility in the context it was used at the beginning of the book? And then in this week's segment, personal responsibility.
5: I I'll have to think about that one. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, if we have time, i I probably chime in later, but I guess, uh, from this chapter in regards to, uh, the, uh, the, the main character and his interaction with the brotherhood, I mean, it's, this is, uh, this is what is very interesting about, uh, you know, this story in regards to his interaction with the brotherhood. Um, uh, when he was describing, when the uh, main character was describing the incident of Brother Clip thing being shot by the police and the brotherhood talking about how he was a traitor, and um, and uh, and and basically, you know, the the main character was talking about, you know, he was an unarmed black man who was shot by the police. Does you know, it doesn't matter if he was a traitor or not. It it just eerily reminds me of the recent police shootings that, you know, happened with Mike Brown and and Eric Garner and how, you know, uh, racists would always, you know, tell us, well, there were criminals and they needed to be shot anyway. So uh, kind of like the same story. It, it was, it, I mean, it was great, you know, forecasting by Ralph Ellison in regards to this. I mean, he wrote this book in the 50s and this still applies today uh, when, you know, racists argue about, you know, the shooting of unarmed black men and trying to criminalize them as, you know, as it being justified. So uh, I paid close attention to that and and how brilliant that was uh, in regards to that. Um, um, The the phrase that uh, Brother Jack was talking to him in regards to, you weren't hired to think. You know, I often think of organizations that You know, most uh, black people link themselves to like, uh, you know, for instance, the Democratic Party uh, where, you know, uh, they're, you know, they think that they're, you know, for them. But then when you when they come up with ideas, you know, uh, the racist Democratic Party would just tell you, well, you know, let us control it. So the Brotherhood kind of reminds me of that, uh, you know. Uh, for, you know, supposedly for the cause of, you know, non-white people, but really they're, they're, you know, they're as much racist or even more racist than, say, the Republican Party as what most people, you know, call it. Um, and in regards to uh, uh, the chapter where he's in Harlem and everybody's uh, confusing him uh, with, Ryan, uh, what what's his name, Reinhold, um, that that actually, you know, binds to the theme of the book in regards to his identity. You know, it's like uh he does he I mean he's still, you know, it's still showing how he basically has no identity and he's getting mixed up with, you know, somebody else. So uh that emphasizes the theme of uh no identity for the character yet. Um and also uh in regards to brother Jack's eye now, what was so interesting is, um, uh, I think I called in before in regards to the bull references and and uh, how Dr. Wilson always referred to the uh, the uh, definite uh, the book of symbols by Serlo. And so, um, when I when when I went back and, and 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 looked at the book, and I was looking at the symbol of the eye, and Here's a here's something that I want to read real quickly. It says, The possession of two eyes convey physical norm- normality and its spiritual equivalence, and it follows that the third eye is symbolic of the superhuman or the divine. As for the single eye, it is significant on one hand that it implies a
6: subhuman
5: because it is less than two eyes. And I thought about that because of the subhuman nature of races, you know, uh, the way they act, uh, basically their subhuman nature uh, uh, towards, you know, non, non-white non people uh, and their thought of, of us non-white people as subhuman. So uh, that single eye reference is, you know, was very compelling to me when, when I read that, when I read that. So uh, that's all I have on me in my life.
3: Much obliged. Um, Brother Jack, when his eyeball falls out, is referenced uh, as a cyclops, where he uses a derivative of the term cyclops. uh, And that is from uh, Greek mythology, member of a race of savage one-eyed giants. Uh, So I think uh, your commentary about having one eye uh, implying or there being some sort of connotation of uh, one being subhuman. Uh, Cyclops would reinforce that because I don't think Cyclops are thought of as humans. They're some sort of you know beast, monster. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, if we've not heard from you at all, proceed. No be heard. Yes, ma'am. Greetings, Ivy. Yep.
7: Greetings, and uh, greetings to all the callers on the line. Um, I'm gonna try my best in terms of the responsibility question that you asked. I thought that um, it it is um that that there is a connection because when I heard personal responsibility, it just immediately uh, jumped out at me because of just the context of this whole situation. Um, I thought that the that the connection could be with the social responsibility and personal responsibility is that. What was being told to the crowd is to not react um in self-defense whether it be what white people call rioting, which again which is just self-defense of war being waged against you or just any type of you know response and warranted response from you know what they're doing um and i, I think the same and as far as the personal responsibility and what, I'm, what i mean as far as a, a response to the, the the murder of todd clifton I, I think that's what you asked about or I, I think that that may be um where the the social responsibility i, I don't know about todd clifton necessarily but someone something some injustice happened um at the hands of white people i don't know if it was the eviction or what it may have been but as far as the personal responsibility i think that's related to todd clifton and to me. Um, I just took it the way, uh, white people usually mean it, like whenever we, whenever the victims, um, speak about injustice at the hands of white people, they always talk about personal responsibility and always want to deflect on whatever flaws, uh, that we either have, or they have made up and lied about to, um, blame us victims for the things that they do to us. Um, it was a very, um. the not high. We didn't hire you to think, man, I, that really, uh, stood out. And the interesting thing is, if I'm not mistaken, they did allow him to voice his thoughts on other things. But then when it came to speaking truthfully about racism, they didn't like that. And so now all of a sudden, you know, we, we didn't hire you to think, um, and, I think that they were also saying about telling them what to think. I I, I want to say that it's, that it's just Harlem in general that they were saying that, you know, they'll tell them what to think. And I thought that was, from what I remember, that that's also related to Todd Clifton's uh, murder. Um, but I could be getting that wrong. Um, an- another thing that stood out to me is that I think he talked about, I think the protagonist talked about strangling um, <laughs> Brother uh, Jack or whoever and that to me it seems to be kind of a recurring theme where it just seems like he always want to fight somebody um i I think he wanted to fight dr bledsoe and just a bunch of other people that made him mad throughout this whole um throughout this whole book so far and it, it just it seems to me that to speak to um ralph ellison's uh his rage and the last thing that i wanted to say is that uh for joe morton like man as we always say, you know, he's just so incredible. And it's to the point where sometimes I forget that it's only one person speaking. Like, especially when he's being the protagonist and he's being Brother Jack, it's, it just sounds like two totally different people. He's just so awesome. And uh, that's all I had. And uh, I'll be my line. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Gus.
3: Much obliged, Ivy. <coughs> Clogged chest. Much obliged, Ivy. Outstanding uh, commentary. Really important point, I think, about uh, the fighting because that has continued. I know I've harped on that uh, quite a bit. And absolutely, he was ready to throw down uh, with all you said. He had the uh, he had Brother Tarp's iron around his hand like he was going to use it like some brass knuckles like he is ready to throw down. And absolutely, I think on the head, on the head. Excellent uh, commentary. Uh, Other folks, if you have a hand up, if we've not heard from you at all, uh, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Brother Jay, St. Louis.
6: Hey, I want to say give a shout out to all the callers. I think some great points have been made. Um, The reading this week has been great. Um, I want to echo two points. Um, One point was just made by the last caller. Uh, I think it I think it is a good observation that he, uh, that the main character wanted to assault Brother Jack, and I interpreted that as a positive indication. Um, Brother Jack has often been held above regard and high esteem, and having his authority questioned that directly, I think is a positive sign, and I think it's more of a sign of his move toward Blackness, toward this identification with Black people. And I think that that move only intensifies when he puts on these glasses and uh and and, and you know plays Mr. Reinhardt um in this kind of passive way. because uh, as soon as he put on the glasses, he he, he said something like uh he, he started describing things as sinister. It was almost as if he was able to put on a different uh it, it really makes me think about uh ways of seeing because he describes everything as really, really different uh, once he puts on the glasses, uh, even before he's mistaken for Mr. Reinhardt. So I think he said he was submerged into the blackness or something, something to that effect right when he put on the glasses. So I thought that was important. Um, and to your question, I went back and looked um, at that part where he said social responsibility and social equality to the crowd after the fight. And what happens in that uh, back and forth between him and the crowd is a kind of delimiting of his thinking ability, of the range of topics he can think about with the crowd. So they say uh, the crowd, when he says social equality, says, you know, stay in your place. You're not trying to get smart, are you? So in so many words, they tell him, you're not really here to think. And then when he does it with Brother Jack, it goes to uh, individual responsibility, but then Brother Jack tells him, you're not here to think as well. So I think um, there's something about intellectual activities and pursuits that uh, whites are only okay with to a certain degree. Um, But what's further intriguing is how it goes from social responsibility to individual responsibility. And I think at first he's more naive. And he's talking about social responsibility with white people and black people together. And I think when he used the word individual, he's more aware of how uh, outside of a privileged space he is. So he's taking personal responsibility for the black population instead of uh, requesting social responsibility. But even that is unwarranted um, and not not encouraged uh, by the brotherhood, so-called brotherhood, um, and, um, I think it's, uh, I think it's very, uh, uh, I think it's great foreshadowing. And it's a, I think it's a lot of substance in this entire thesis of invisibility that comes with brother Jack's eye. Um, you brought up that he was uh, referenced as a cyclops, which is important as well, but I think there's a, there's a little space of possibility that this invisibility has, um, that the, the main character is working through a little bit because he's playing with the invisibility with the glasses, but he makes it known once Brother Jack uh, takes out that eye, he's very aware now of all these vulnerabilities that he didn't see. He feels like he he can gaze from a certain position now onto Brother Jack where he couldn't before once, his, once Brother Jack's uh, visibility or lack thereof is made known. He's able to take advantage of the invisibility and say things like, he can't even see me now. Maybe I'll, I'll assault him. You know, maybe I'll kick his ass. He, he can't even see me. And I think that kind of questioning and posturing, uh, I think it represents a, a, a crux of, of possibility. Uh, and, that, and that's all I'll say. Thanks for letting me speak
3: outstanding brother jay excellent comments uh like everyone else folks have i guess really paid attention or did their reading in advance uh great commentary from everyone uh red in nevada sister red uh if you had commentary you should be with us
8: hello thank you for allowing me to share hello everyone and i definitely appreciate everyone's commentary as well um i know someone mentioned about um the reinhardt uh, situation i definitely um feel like um, that's something that I kind of share as well. It's almost like, um, it kind of reminds me of, uh, how Dr. Curry kind of said that black people were not, um, sex or gender. So it's kind of like, like someone else said, we're basically like a blank slate. So all you have to do is simply, you know, just put on a new costume and you're a completely different person. But I, I did appreciate definitely the, the Reinhardt part. Um, but going back to, the um, the other chapter. I know someone had already mentioned how basically the the story, the demise of Brother Todd Clifton, definitely reminded me as well of the police shootings, and it was just really um, amazing how I guess maybe not I don't know maybe wise or what have you um, how Ralph Ellison he. Basically, you know, told the story of how we're still going through today. And it makes me think about how, you know, white people, they really don't have to change their same tactics. They can, you know, kill black people and then we'll respond the same. They'll allow us to respond the same through these protests or, you know, these mass, um, displays of emotional, um, outbursts or what have you. And then that'll be it. But I, I did appreciate the, the part in chapter 22 at the end where, he said um, tonight I would never I wouldn't ever look the same or feel the same just what I'd be I didn't know but I couldn't go back to what I was which wasn't much but I'd lost too much to be what I was and I know I kind of felt that way when I I felt like I, I started to become less confused and it was because of the complete the police shootings I became less confused. But I feel like, you know, once I started learning about racism, white supremacy it's something like you can't really, you know, turn off. I did appreciate um, the author um, also kind of putting in the protagonist that uh, kind of um, him. Voicing at least, you know, really being able to voice his true opinion, and I, I like how he kind of did like the back and forth between um, the protagonist and. Brother, uh, I think it's Tobit, and how he said uh, how the protagonist had said history is made at night, and it reminds me of I think either Pam or Doctor Welsing, Basically, like I know for sure Pam how she said you know white people they can't really love you, but and, and still you know allow you to be in this you know racist society and and really not tell you anything, and how Brother Tobin how he had mentioned well he has a you know a respectable. Negro wife, and that's why he he knew what he knew and just the confusion of that but i I definitely appreciated that sentiment um, and then with chapter twenty three it i i thought it was really i um, i i appreciate it like i guess like the back and forth between you know um, the protagonist being quote unquote reinhardt and just all the different um interactions that he had with, with other people. All he really had to do was just, you know, just put on the costume and he could just become whomever and really not knowing who this Reinhardt person was. You know, he went from a preacher to a pimp to a player to, you know, just someone who was just violent or t- just so many different things. And I know like as, as Black people, sometimes we have to be a of lo- many different things that we don't really know who we are. Um, who we really want to be, but I don't, I don't know if maybe that's where the author was going with it, but that's what I thought about it. The question about the personal responsibility, I know, like, at least in the beginning, the the, the battle royale, I thought about how basically suspected racists, they kind of put the fact that, you know, it is black people or there is non-white people, whatever um, racist oppression we have to deal with it's our fault because you know we're not we're not civilized we're not acting right you know if um, I kind of felt like in the beginning, um, especially just kind of tying into i think it was um true blood, how uh, basically it almost made it seem as if um, you know true blood we're we all are true blood, and we all you know are so animalistic and bestial, so we have this social responsibility to be better in you know, suspected racist eyes, and if we're not, then we deserve whatever treatment we get. Um, so I, I guess that's kind of what I thought about it. I'm, I'm still kind of thinking about how um, brother Jack put it. And I guess the last thing, um, um, I guess that that's it. I, I'll, I'll leave it there. Thank you for allowing me to share.
3: Indeed. Uh, if there are other folks who have commentary, they would like to share, uh, feel free, dial in, star six one, and we'll get your hand. Uh, We have about mm, 10 minutes or so before we get to the second audio segment. Uh, I will read a few comments and quite a few people wrote in. Uh, I'm going to begin sprinkling in the commentary that people read as well. Uh, This is such a a rich book. So some of the comments that I took or uh, notes that I made, let's see... Oh, yeah, you all uh, already commented. uh, Brother Tarp, where he comments on having a black, or Brother Tobit. I'm sorry, Brother Tobit, where he remarks, you know, I've got a a Negro girl partner, whatever it is. Uh, What stood out to me is like, wow, this is 1950s where you have a black author who is pointing out this sophisticated tactic of racists. uh, The, oh, I've got a black friend, or I adopted a Negro child, or whatever it is, so I certainly am not racist, and I am an expert on the plight of Negroes, which, you know, whites are experts on racism. Uh, And in fact, I even forgot, going all the way back to the very beginning uh, of chapter 22, I thought it was important, and that kind of sent my mind back to the beginning of the book in the battle royal, because granddad was invoked, and I think, you know, every time that grandfather is invoked we should you know be alert uh when he says uh, it was as though i had expected to find them there talking about the whites in the brotherhood just as in those dreams in which i encountered my grandfather looking at me from across the dimensionless space of a dream room i looked back without surprise or emotion although i knew even in the dream that surprise was the normal reaction and that the lack of it was to be distrusted a warning such a beautiful uh, paragraph. I even had to go back and think about it quite a few times. But granddad being invoked because of the words on his deathbed that sent my mind back thinking to the beginning of the book. And then right after that, social res- uh, social responsibility is said or right at the same part. Uh, but it also made me think about this scene and just, you know, I say on a regular basis, we should work a part of counter racism as we get a better understanding is. No longer being surprised about things, especially with white people. And if we, some of you all commented and said this scene, it seems like he is beginning to understand a bit more what racism is, he is not surprised about what he's seeing. Hugely uh, important in my view. Continuing, um, you all already talked about not being hired to think that should resonate with a lot of black people across time, space, as long as there's a system of white supremacy. Uh, I do want it to be said, I think I said last week that you know, tons of whites have read Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man and they've read so for decades. There's no way you can read this book and conclude that you don't know anything about black people being shot by police because it gets presented in this book not as shock or surprise. It's presented in this book like this has been a long running problem, black people being shot and killed By enforcement officials and this is written in the 1950s so again that's malarkey and for me this book just serves as further evidence of some things are just constants in the system of white supremacy there's nothing that can be done about the police shootings as long as you have a system of white supremacy black people are going to be getting shot and killed by enforcement officers to stop that problem to solve that problem permanently You have to end the system of white supremacy. That's the conclusion that I have come to. I could be in error, but that this book right here is exactly why I do not get caught up in all the hashtags and all of that. Because, I mean, you can spend the next 50 years or hopefully it won't be that long. But as long as the system of white supremacy exists, you will be sitting around and crying and hashtagging and marching and whatever else it is. And the police will keep right on with their nigger knockers. Next. Uh, the paragraph where brother Jack says, so you've heard it very well. So now hear this. We do not shape our policies to the mistaken and infantile notions of the man in the street. Our job is not to ask them what they think, but to tell them like, wow, make it plain from the lips of, of racist man. This is what it is. And you are not men and women, infantile, children. Uh, next. I thought y'all had great commentary about uh, the eye and all of that going back into the metaphor of uh, invisible man not being seen, not being seen truthfully, uh, have there being some sort of white supremacist lens perception of how you're going to be uh, thought of, looked at uh, I think there's also a great significance in the bar owner in Harlem, Barrel House the bar owner in, uh, at the Golden Day uh, oh I just had his name, it'll come to me in a second, I can't believe it, Cargo, Super Cargo uh, at the uh, Golden Day uh, the similarity between the two uh, and in fact, I take it back. Supercargo wasn't even the bartender. He was just kind of bouncer uh, person who kept things in order. I forget the bartender's name, but I do think uh, that is important, uh, particularly for racism, white supremacy, black people not being thought of as humans. These types of names, Supercargo, Barrelhouse. House. Next. Uh, I think there's been so much talk about identity and the protagonist not having an identity except that that is given to him by whites or by dr blitz the folks at the school whoever it happens to be i also think this scene reinforcing that reinforcing that obviously him being mistaken for reinhardt but i also think in destabilizing you know who reinhardt is who we've heard so far where he's talking so strong about white supremacy and supporting black people and now it's like well wait a minute is he a pimp or see selling drugs like what's going on uh, I think it it destabilizes I think red was talking about it it kind of destabilizes the whole notion of uh identity for any black person uh in terms of how you might be how you might be forced to respond in the system of racism, white supremacy, where we are in a very weak position uh, you might be required to perform all kinds of tasks like the police come in to perform a shakedown you don't really have it's not a whole lot you can do about that whether you want to be subjected to it or not and i think that happens to a lot of black people where they end up being forced into a lot of different situations especially being confused uh, where you can find yourself in Whew, a variety of circumstances, even as illustrated by the author. It very easily could have been him that ended up being in any of those situations because he certainly has man. Mr. Fuller's concept. This will be my last point. Eat, sleep, wander bump. I'm not sure if he has shared that on talk, I couldn't even tell you, honestly, if it's on a program or just from a previous conversation that we had. But if you call him or you call in talk, Tainment, Mr. Fuller. Eat, Sleep, Wander, Bump. Have you ever mentioned that? Can you give us some details and have him lay it down for you? But it is Invisible Man, Protagonist, totally where you, when you are confused, when you do not see accurately Whites, Eat, Sleep, Wander, Bump, where you just end up going from here, there, hither, and yonder with no purpose, no aim at all, just moving through the world. That is this here book. Very easily, the protagonist could have been Reinhardt, Pimp, Hustler, Selling drugs and all the rest. I'll stop there. We have about four minutes. Uh, did any other folks have additional questions, comments they wanted to get in? I'm here. Sister Ivy.
7: Sister Ivy. Brother Renegade, I just actually wanted to say this before, uh, just in case I forgot, on the other side of the second segment, just um, have a great class tonight. And I hope that you don't um, really uh, experience any racism, even though I doubt very seriously that that'll be the case. But just, you know, I hope you have a great class. That's it. Tell me
3: Much obliged. I'm hoping it will be grand as well. No. Well, that might be much to ask, but at least no direct violence and No direct harm I think that's not asking too much. Uh, Did any other folks have comments, questions that stood out first audio segment?
6: Uh, Can I make another comment about the blindness of brother Jack?
3: Yes, sir. Brother Jay in St. Louis.
6: Uh, It made me think about, um, I'm listening to the cows archive right now and I'm listening to the spook who sat by the door. Think about that book, that, that section where Sam Greenlee talks about how he wrote the novel and that the white people were so arrogant to think that uh, black people don't read. So he was able to have this book and develop it um, to a proper form in, an, in, the, in the form of a, of a book and have it slip right under the eyes of the white supremacists because they were just sure that you know, Negroes don't read uh, and it just made me think about that giant cyclops and that that potential of invisibility, the, that kind of sub, subversive potential of being invisible. Uh, that's all I want to add.
3: Two days in a row, the great Sam Greenlee, spook who sat by the door, also from the Cow's Book Club. Other folks have commentary they wanted to get in before we get to audio segment number two.
7: Um, may I add one more thing?
3: Sister Red in Nevada.
8: Um. So the the only thing I wanted to add was just going back to the whole I part with Brother Jack, and there was a part where he said, you know, basically Brother Jack would um, disfigure himself just to confound the protagonist, and it just kind of plays into the fact that you know white people they will do stuff to themselves or you know really just to put us off guard, to constantly constantly keep us in this state of confusion. And that's what it made me think about as well. And I'll mute my line. Thank you.
3: Absolutely. That scene, uh, that, what Red just mentioned, I think is important. It reminded me, you have whites, and this is a generational thing. There'll be whites who say, oh, man, I was... I marched with Dr. King and, you know, I was out there in the sixties. I got arrested. I was with the the weather underground and uh, this general, I marched, you know, I had a hoodie on for Trayvon Martin and, you know, I went all the way to Ferguson for Michael. I got arrested in Ferguson and pepper sprayed and everything, you know, that they did this and they'll show you their police record that they did this. or they suffered that fighting against racism is tons of brother Jack's uh, or sister Jacqueline's It's tons of them uh, who will show you that they did this and they have suffered on behalf of negros whatever audio segment number two ralph ellison invisible man context of white supremacy so we're in the middle of chapter 23 and again the paragraph really you should just look for the page where it says holy way station behold the living god it should be in big all capital letters on the page we're one paragraph above that middle of chapter 23 we're starting now audio segment number two.
0: Several blocks away, I I stopped out of breath and both pleased and, and angry. How stupid could people be? Was everyone suddenly nuts? I looked about me. It was a bright street, the walks full of people. I stood at the curb trying to breathe. Up the street, a sign with a cross glowed above the walk. Holy Way Station. Behold the living God. The letters glowed dark green, and I wondered if it were from the lenses or the actual color of the neon tubes. A couple of drunks stumbled past. I headed for Hambros, passing a man sitting on the curb with his head bent over his knees. Cars passed. I went on. Two solemn-faced children came passing out handbills, which first I refused, then went back and took. After all, I had to know what was going on in the community. I took the bill and stepped close to the streetlight, reading, Behold the Invisible Thy will be done, O Lord. I see all, know all, tell all, cure all. You shall see the unknown wonders. Reverend B.P. Reinhardt, spiritual technologist. The old is ever new. Way stations in New Orleans, the home of mystery, Birmingham, New York, Chicago, Detroit, and L.A. No problem too hard for God. Come to the way station. Behold the invisible. Attend our services, prayer meetings, thrice weekly. Join us in the new revelation of the old-time religion. Behold the seen unseen. Behold the invisible. Ye who are weary, come home. I do what you want done. Don't wait. I dropped the leaflet into the gutter and moved on. I walked slowly, my breath still coming hard. Could it be? Soon I reached the sign. It hung above a store that had been converted into a church, and I stepped into the shallow lobby and wiped my face with a handkerchief. Behind me I heard the rise and fall of an old-fashioned prayer such as I hadn't heard since leaving the campus, and then only when visiting country preachers were asked to pray. The voice rose and fell in a rhythmical, dreamlike recital part enumeration of earthly trials undergone by the congregation, part rapt display of vocal virtuosity, part appeal to God. I was still wiping my face and squinting at crude biblical scenes painted on the windows when two old ladies came up to me. "Even, Reverend Reinhard," one of them said. How's our dear pastor this warm evening? Oh, no, I thought. But perhaps agreeing will cause less trouble than denying, and I said. Uh, good evening, sisters, muffling my voice with my handkerchief and catching the odor of the girl's perfume from my hand. This here is Sister Harris, Reverend. She come to join our little band. God bless you, Sister Harris, I said, taking her extended hand. You know, Reverend, I once heard you preach years ago. You was just a little old 12-year-old boy back in Virginia, and here I come north and find you. Praise God, still preaching the gospel, doing the Lord's work, still preaching the old-time religion here in this wicked city. Uh, Sister Harris, the other sister said, we better get on in and find our seats. Besides, the pastor's kind of got things to do, though you are here a little early, aren't you, Reverend? Yes, I said, dabbing my mouth with my handkerchief. They were motherly old women of the southern type, and I suddenly felt a nameless despair. I wanted to tell them that Reinhardt was a fraud. But now there came a shout from inside the church and I and I heard a burst of music. Just listen to it, Sister Harris. That's the new kind of guitar music I told you Reverend Reinhardt got for us. Ain't it heavenly? Praise God, Sister Harris said. Praise God. Uh, excuse us, Reverend. I have to see Sister Judkins about the money she collected for the building fund. And, Reverend, last night I sold ten recordings of your inspiring sermon. Even sold one to the white lady I worked for. Bless you, I found myself saying in a voice heavy with despair. Bless you. Bless you. Then the door opened and I looked past their heads into a small crowded room of men and women sitting in folding chairs to the front where a slender woman in a rusty black robe played passionate boogie-woogie on an upright piano, along with a young man wearing a skullcap who struck righteous riffs from an electric guitar which was connected to an amplifier that hung from the ceiling above a gleaming white and gold pulpit. A man in an elegant red cardinal's robe and a high lace collar stood resting against an enormous Bible and now began to lead a hard-driving hymn which the congregation shouted in the unknown tongue. And back and high on the wall above him there arched the words in letters of gold, Let there be light. The whole scene quivered vague and mysterious in the green light. Then the door closed and the sound muted down. It was too much for me. I removed my glasses and tucked the white hat carefully beneath my arm and walked away. Can it be, I thought. Can it actually be? And I knew that it was. I had heard of it before, but I'd never come so close. Still, could he be all of them? Rhine the runner, and Rhine the gambler, and Rhine the briber, and Rhine the lover, and Reinhardt the reverend? Could he himself be both Reinhardt and Hart? What <sighs> is real, anyway? But how could I doubt it? He was a broad man, a man of parts who got around, Reinhardt the rounder. It was true. As I was true. His world was possibility, and he knew it. He was years ahead of me, and I was a fool. I must have been crazy and blind. The world in which we lived was without boundaries. A vast, seething, hot world of fluidity, and Ryan the Rascal was at home. Perhaps only Ryan the Rascal was at home in it. It was unbelievable, but perhaps only the unbelievable could be believed. Perhaps the truth was always a lie. Perhaps I thought the whole thing should roll off me like drops of water rolling off Jack's glass eye. I should search out the proper political classification, label Reinhardt and his situation, and quickly forget it. I hurried away from the church so swiftly that I found myself back at the office before I remembered that I was going to Hambrose. I was both depressed and fascinated. I wanted to know Reinhardt, and yet I thought, I'm upset because I know I don't have to know him. That simply becoming aware of his existence, being mistaken for him, is enough to convince me that Reinhardt is real. It couldn't be, but it is. And it can be, is, simply because it's unknown. Jack wouldn't dream of such a possibility, nor Tobit, who thinks he's so close. Too little was known, too much was in the dark. I thought of Clifton and of Jack himself. How much was really known about either of them? How much was known about me? Who from my old life had challenged me? And after all this time, I had just discovered Jack's missing eye. My entire body started to itch as though I had just been removed from a plaster cast and was unused to the new freedom of movement. In the South, everyone knew you, but coming north was a jump into the unknown how many days could you walk the streets of the big city without encountering anyone who knew you? And how many nights? You could actually make yourself anew. The notion was frightening. For now, the world seemed to flow before my eyes. All boundaries down, freedom was not only the recognition of necessity, it was the recognition of possibility. And sitting there, trembling, I caught a brief glimpse of the possibilities posed by Reinhardt's multiple personalities and turned away. It was too vast and confusing to contemplate. Then I looked at the polished lenses of the glasses and laughed. <laughs> I'd been trying, simply, to turn them into a disguise, but they had become a political instrument instead. For if Reinhardt could use them in his work, no doubt, I could use them in mine. It was too simple. And yet they had already opened up a new section of reality for me. What? Would the committee say about that? What did their theory tell them of such a world? I recalled a report of a shoeshine boy who had encountered the best treatment in the South simply by wearing a white turban instead of his usual Dobbs or Stetson, and I fell into a fit of laughing. (laughs) Jack would be outraged at the very suggestion of such a, a state of things, and yet there was truth in it. This was the real chaos which he thought he was describing. So long ago, it seemed now. (laughs) Outside the Brotherhood, we were outside history. But inside of it, they didn't see us. It was a hell of a state of affairs. We were nowhere. I I I wanted to back away from it But still I wanted to discuss it To consult someone who'd tell me It was only a brief emotional illusion I wanted the props put back beneath the world So now I had a a real need to see Hambro Getting up to go I looked at the wall map And laughed at Columbus What an India he'd found (laughs) I was almost across the hall When I remembered And came back and put on the hat and glasses I'd need them to carry me through the streets. I took a cab. Hambro lived in the West 80s, and once in the vestibule, I tucked the hat under my arm and put the glasses in my pocket along with Brother Tarp's leg chain and Clifton's doll. (laughs) My pocket was getting overloaded. I was shown into a small book-lined study by Hambro himself. From another part of the apartment came a child's voice singing Humpty Dumpty awakening humiliating memories of my first Easter program during which I had stood before the church audience and forgotten the words. My kid, Ambrose said, filibustering against going to bed. Ha! A real she-lawyer, that kid. The child was singing Hickory Dickory Dock very fast as Ambrose shut the door. He was saying something about the child, and I looked at him with sudden irritation. With Reinhardt on my mind, why had I come here? Ambrose was so tall that when he crossed his legs, both feet touched the floor. He had been my teacher during my period of indoctrination, and now I realized that I shouldn't have come. Ambrose lawyer's mind was too narrowly logical. He'd see Reinhardt simply as a criminal, my obsession as a fall into pure mysticism. he would better hope that is the way he'll see it, I thought. Then I decided to ask him about conditions uptown and leave. Look, Brother Hambro, I said, what's to be done about my district? He looked at me with a dry smile. Have I become one of those boars who talk too much about their children? Oh, no, no, it's it's not that, I said. I've had a hard day. I'm, I'm nervous. With Clifton's death and things in the district so bad, I guess, of course, he said, still smiling. But why are you worried about the district? Because things are getting out of hand. Ross's men... Tried to, to rough me up tonight, and our strength is steadily going to hell. That's regrettable, he said, but there's nothing to be done about it uh, that wouldn't upset the larger plan. It's unfortunate, brother, but your members will have to be sacrificed. The distant child had stopped singing now, and it was dead quiet. I looked at the angular composure of his face, searching for the sincerity in his words. I could feel some deep change. It was as though my discovery of Reinhardt had opened a gulf between us, over which, though we sat within touching distance, our voices barely carried and then fell flat without an echo. I tried to shake it away, but still the distance, so great that neither could grasp the emotional tone of the other, remained. Sacrifice, my voice said. You say that very easily. Just a shame, though. Uh, All who leave must be considered, Expendable. The new directives must be followed rigidly. It sounded unreal. An antiphonal game. But why, I said. Why must the directives be changed in my district when the old methods are needed, especially now? Somehow I couldn't get the needed urgency into my words. And beneath it all, something about Reinhardt bothered me, darted just beneath the surface of my mind, something that had to do with me intimately. Intimately. It's chimple, Brother Hembro said, "We are making temporary alliances with other political groups, and the interests of one group of brothers must be sacrificed to that of the whole." Why wasn't I told of this?" I said. "You will be in time, by the committee. Sacrifice is necessary now. But shouldn't sacrifice be made willingly by those who know what they are doing? My people don't understand why they're being sacrificed. They don't even know they're being sacrificed. At least not by us. But what, my mind went on, if they're as willing to be duped by the Brotherhood as by Reinhardt? I sat up at the thought, and there must have been an odd expression on my face for Hambro, who was resting his elbows upon the arms of the chair and touching his fingertips together, raised his eyebrows as though expecting me to continue. Then he said, The disciplined members will understand. I pulled Tarp's leg chain from my pocket and slipped it over my knuckles. <laughs> he didn't notice. Don't you realize that we have only a handful of disciplined members left? Today the funeral brought out hundreds who'll drop away as soon as they see we're not following through. And now we're being attacked on the streets. Can't you understand? Other groups are circulating petitions. Ross is calling for violence. The committee is mistaken if they think this is going to die down. He shrugged. It's a risk which we must take. All of us must sacrifice for the good of the whole. Change is achieved through sacrifice. We follow the laws of reality, so we make sacrifices. But the community is demanding equality of sacrifice, I said. We've never asked for special treatment. It isn't that simple, brother, he said. We have to protect our gains. It's inevitable that some must make greater sacrifices than others. That some being my people. In this instance, yes. So the weak must sacrifice for the strong, is that it, brother? No, a part of the whole is sacrificed, and will continue to be until a new society is formed. I I don't get it, I said. I just don't get it. We work our hearts out trying to get the people to follow us, and just when they do, just when they see their relationship to events, we drop them. I I don't see it. Ambrose smiled remotely. We don't have to worry about the aggressiveness of the Negroes, not during the new period or any other. In fact, we now have to slow them down for their own good. It's a scientific necessity. I looked at him at the long, bony, almost Lincoln-esque face. I might have liked him, I thought. He seems to be a really kind and sincere man, and yet he can say this to me? So you really believe that, I said quietly. With all my integrity, he said. For a second, I thought I'd laugh. Or let fly with tarp's link. Integrity? He talks to me of integrity? I described a circle in the air. I'd tried to build my integrity upon the role of brotherhood, and now it had changed to water, air. What was integrity? What did it have to do with a world in which Reinhardt was possible and successful? But what's changed, I said. Wasn't I brought in to arouse their aggressiveness. My voice fell sad, hopeless. For that particular period, Ambrose said, leaning a little forward. Only for that period. And what will happen now, I said. He blew a smoke ring, the blue-gray circle rising up, boiling within its own jetting form, hovering for an instant, then disintegrating into a weaving strand. Cheer up, he said. We shall progress. Only now... They must be brought along more slowly. How would he look through the green lenses, I thought, saying, Are you sure you're not saying that they must be held back? He chuckled. Now, listen, (laughs) he said. Don't stretch me on a rack of dialectic. I'm a brother. You mean the brakes must be put on the old wheel of history, I said. Or is it the little wheels within the wheel? His face sobered. I mean only that they must be brought along more slowly. They can't be allowed to upset the tempo of the master plan. Timing is all important. Besides, you still have a job to do, only now it will be more educational. And what about the shooting? Those who are dissatisfied will drop away, and those who remain, you'll teach. I don't think I can, I said. Why? It's just as important because they are against us. Besides, I'd feel like Reinhardt. It slipped out, and he looked at me. Like who? Um, Like a charlatan, I said. Ambro laughed. (laughs) I thought you had learned about that, brother. I looked at him quickly. Learned what? That it's impossible not to take advantage of the people. That's wine cynicism. What? Cynicism, I said. Not cynicism, realism, the trick is to take advantage of them in their own best interest. I sat forward in my chair, suddenly conscious of the unreality of the conversation, But who is to judge? Jack? The committee? We judge through cultivating scientific objectivity, he said with a voice that had a smile in it. And suddenly I saw the hospital machine felt as though locked in again. Don't kid yourself, I said. The only scientific objectivity is a machine. Discipline, not machinery, he said. We're scientists. We must take the risks of our science and our will to achieve. Would you like to resurrect God to take responsibility? He shook his head. No, brother, we have to make such decisions ourselves, even if we must sometimes appear as charlatans. You're in for some surprises, I said. Maybe so and maybe not, he said. At any rate, through our very position in the vanguard, we must do and say the things necessary to get the greatest number of the people to move toward what is for their own good. Suddenly I couldn't stand it. Look at me! Look at me, I said. Everywhere I've turned, somebody has wanted to sacrifice me for my good. Only they were the ones who benefited. And now we start on the old sacrificial merry-go-round. And at what point do we stop? Is this the new true definition? Is brotherhood a matter of sacrificing the weak? If so, at what point do we stop? Ambro looked as though I were not there. At the proper moment, Cheyenne will stop us. And, of course, we as individuals must sympathetically debunk ourselves, even though it does only a little good. But then, he shrugged, if you go too far in that direction, you can't pretend to lead. You'll lose your confidence. You won't believe enough in your own correctness to lead others. You must therefore have confidence in those who lead you, in the collective wisdom of brotherhood. I left in a worse state than that in which I'd come. Several buildings away, I heard him call behind me, watched him approach through the dark. You left your hat, he said, handing it to me along with the mimeographed sheets of instructions outlining the new program. I looked at the hat and at him, thinking of Reinhardt and invisibility, but knew that for him it would have no reality. I told him good night and went through the hot street to Central Park West, starting toward Harlem. Sacrifice and leadership, I thought. For him, it was simple. For them, it was simple. But how? I was both, both sacrificer and victim. I couldn't get away from that, and Hambro didn't have to deal with it. That was a reality, too, my reality. He didn't have to put the knife blade to his own throat. What would he say if he were the victim? I walked along the park in the dark. Cars passed. From time to time, the sound of voices squealing, laughter arose from behind the trees and hedges. I could smell the sun-singed grass. The sky against which an airplane beacon played was still overcast. I thought of Jack, the people at the funeral, Reinhardt. They'd asked us for bread, and the best I could give was a glass eye, not so much as an electric guitar. I stopped and dropped to a bench. I should leave, I thought. That would be the honest thing to do. Otherwise, I can only tell them to have hope and to try to hold on to those who'd listen. Was that also what Reinhardt was, a principle of hope for which they gladly paid? Otherwise, there was nothing but betrayal. And that meant going back to serve Bledsoe and Emerson, jumping from the pot of absurdity to the fire of the ridiculous. And either was self-betrayal. But I couldn't leave. I had to settle with Jack and Tobit. I it to Clifton and Tarp and the others. I had to hold on. And then I had an idea that shook me Profoundly. "'You don't have to worry about the people. "'If they tolerate Reinhardt, then they will forget it. "'And even with them, you are invisible.' "'It lasted only the fraction of a second, "'and I rejected it immediately. "'Still, it had flashed across the dark sky of my mind. "'It was just like that. "'It didn't matter because the people didn't realize "'just what had happened, neither my hope nor my failure.' My ambition and integrity were nothing to them, and my failure was as meaningless as as Clifton's. It had been that way all along. Only in the brotherhood there had seemed a chance for such as us, the, the mere glimmer of a light, but behind the polished and humane facade of Jack's eye I'd found an amorphous form and a harsh red rawness, and even that was without meaning except for me. Well... I was, and yet I was invisible. That was the fundamental contradiction. I was, and yet I was unseen.' It was frightening, and as I sat there, I sensed another frightening world of possibilities. For now, I saw that I could agree with Jack without agreeing, and I could tell Harlem to have hope when there was no hope. Perhaps I could tell them to hope until I found the basis of something real, some firm ground for action that would lead them onto the plane of history. But until then, I would have to move them without myself being moved. Ha! I'd have to do a Reinhardt. I leaned against the stone wall along the park, thinking of Jack and Hambro and of the day's events, and shook with rage. It was all a swindle, an obscene swindle. They had set themselves up to describe the world. What did they know of us except that we numbered, so many worked on certain jobs, offered so many votes, provided so many marchers for some protest parade of theirs? I leaned there, aching to humiliate them, to refute them, And now all past humiliations became precious parts of my experience. And for the first time, leaning against that stone wall in the sweltering night, I began to accept my past. And as I accepted it, I felt memories welling up within me. It was as though I'd learned suddenly to look around corners. Images of past humiliations flickered through my head, and I saw that they were more than separate experiences. They were me. They defined me. I was my experiences, and my experiences were me, and no blind men, no matter how powerful they became, even if they conquered the world, could take that or change one single itch, taunt, laugh, cry, scar, ache, rage, or pain of it. They were blind, bat-blind, moving only by the echoed sounds of their own voices. And because they were blind, they would destroy themselves, and I'd help them. (laughs) I laughed. Here I had thought. They accepted me because they felt that color made no difference, when in reality it made no difference because they didn't see either color or men. For all they were concerned, we were so many names scribbled on fake ballots to be used at their convenience and when not needed to be filed away. It was a joke, an absurd joke. And now I looked around a corner of my mind and saw Jack and Norton and Emerson merge into one single white figure. They were very much the same, each attempting to force his picture of reality upon me and neither giving a hoot in hell for how things looked to me, I was simply a material, a natural resource to be used. I had switched from the arrogant absurdity of Norton and Emerson to that of Jack and the Brotherhood. It had all come out the same. Except I now recognized my invisibility. So I'd accept it. I'd explore it, Rhine and heart. I'd plunge into it with both feet and they'd gag. Oh, but wouldn't they gag? I didn't know what my grandfather had met, but I was ready to test his advice. I'd overcome them with yeses, undermine them with grins. I'd agree them to death and destruction, Yes, and I'd let them swallow me until they vomited or burst wide open. Let them gag on what they refused to see. Let them joke on it. That was one risk they hadn't calculated. That was a risk they had never dreamt of in their philosophy, nor did they know that they could discipline themselves to destruction. That saying, yes, could destroy them. Oh, I'd yes them. But wouldn't I yes them? I'd yes them till they puked and rolled in it. All they wanted of me was one belch of affirmation, and I'd bellow it out loud. Yes, yes, yes! That was all anyone wanted of us, that we should be heard and not seen, and then heard only in one big, optimistic chorus of, Yes, yeah, sir! Yes, yeah, sir! Yes, yeah, sir! All right, I'd yea and yea and we and we and see and see and see and see them too. And I'd walk around in their guts with hobnailed boots, even those. Super big shots whom I'd never seen at committee meetings. They wanted a machine very well. I'd become a super-sensitive confirmer of their misconceptions, and just to hold their confidence, I'd try to be right part of the time. Oh, I'd serve them well, and I'd make invisibility felt if not seen, and they'd learn that it could be as polluting as a decaying body or a piece of bad meat in a stew, and if I got hurt... Very well again, besides, didn't they believe in sacrifice? They were the subtle thinkers. Would this be treachery? Did the word apply to an invisible man? Could they recognize choice in that which wasn't seen? The more I thought of it, the more I fell into a kind of morbid fascination with the possibility. Why hadn't I discovered it sooner? How different my life might have been. How terribly different. Why hadn't I seen the possibilities? If a sharecropper could attend college by working during the summer as a waiter and a factory hand or as a musician and then graduate to become a doctor, why couldn't all those things be done at one and the same time? And wasn't that old slave a scientist or at least called one, recognized as one? Even when he stood with his hat in hand, bowing and scraping in senile and obscene servility, my God, what
7: possibilities
0: existed. And that spiral business, that progress goo. Who knew all the secrets? Hadn't I changed my name and never been challenged even once? And that lie that success was arising upward, what a crummy lie they kept us dominated by. Not only could you travel upward toward success, but you could travel downward as well, up and down in retreat as well as in advance, crabways and crossways and around in a circle, meeting your old selves, coming and going, and perhaps all at the same time. How could I have missed it for so long? Hadn't I grown up around gambler politicians, bootlegger judges, and sheriffs who were burglars? Yes, and clansmen who were preachers and members of humanitarian societies Hell, and hadn't Bledsoe tried to tell me what it was all about I felt more dead than alive It had been quite a day, one that could not have been more shattering Even if I had learned that the man whom I'd always called father Was actually of no relation to me I went to the apartment and fell across the bed in my clothes It was hot, and the fan did little more than stir the heat in heavy, leaden waves, beneath which I lay twirling the dark glasses and watching the hypnotic flickering of the lenses as I tried to make plans. I would hide my anger and lull them to sleep, assure them that the community was in full agreement with their program, and as proof I would falsify the attendance records by filling out membership cards with fictitious names, all unemployed, of course, so as to avoid any question of dues. Yes and I would move about the community by night and during times of danger by wearing the white hat and the dark glasses. It was a dreary prospect, but a means of destroying them, at least in Harlem. I saw no possibility of organizing a splinter movement for what would be the next step. Where would we go? There were no allies with whom we could join as equals, nor were there time or theorists available to work out an overall program of our own. Though I felt that somewhere between Reinhardt and invisibility there were great potentialities. We had no money, no intelligence apparatus, either in government, business, or labor unions, and no communications with our own people except through unsympathetic newspapers, a few Pullman porters who brought provincial news from distant cities, and a group of domestics who reported the fairly uninteresting private lives of their employers. If only we had some true friends. Some who saw us as more than convenient tools for shaping their own desires. But to hell with that, I thought. I would remain and become a well-disciplined optimist and help them go merrily to hell. If I couldn't help them to see the realities of our lives, I would help them to ignore it until it exploded in their faces. Only one thing bothered me. Since I now knew that their real objectives were never revealed at committee meetings, I needed some channel of intelligence through which I could learn what actually guided their operations. But how? If only I had resisted being shifted downtown, I would now have enough support in the community to insist that they reveal themselves. Yes, but if I hadn't been shifted, I would still be living in a world of illusion, But now that I had found the thread of reality, how could I hold on? They seemed to have me blocked at every turn, forcing me to fight them in the dark. Finally, I tossed the glasses across the bed and dropped into a fitful nap, during which I relived the events of the last few days, except that instead of Clifton being lost, it was myself. And I awoke stale, sweaty, and aware of of perfume. I lay on my stomach, my head resting upon the back of my hand, thinking, where's it coming from? And just as I caught sight of the glasses, I remembered grasping Lionheart's girl's hand. I lay there unmoving, and she seemed to perch on the bed, a bright-eyed bird with her glossy head and ripe breasts. And I was in a wood, afraid to frighten the bird away. Then I was fully awake, and the bird gone and the girl's image in my mind. What would have happened if I had led her on? How far could I have gone? A desirable girl like that mixed up with (laughs) Reinhardt. And now I sat breathless, asking myself how Reinhardt would have solved the problem of information, and it came instantly clear. (laughs) It called for a woman a wife, a girlfriend, or secretary of one of the leaders who would be willing to talk freely to me. My mind swept back to early experiences in the movement. Little incidents sprang to memory, bringing images of the smiles and gestures of certain women met after rallies and at parties. Dancing with Emma, at the thonian she close, soft, against me, and the hot, swift focusing of my desire and my embarrassment as I caught sight of Jack holding forth in a corner. And Emma holding me tight, her bound breasts pressing against me, looking with that teasing light in her eyes, saying, ah, temptation, and my desperate grab for a sophisticated reply and managing only, oh, but there's always temptation, surprising myself nevertheless, and hearing her laughing, (laughs) touche, touche, you should come up and fence with me some afternoon. That had been during the early days when I had felt strong restrictions and resented Emma's boldness and her opinion that I should have been blacker to play my role of Harlem leader. Well, there were no restrictions left. The committee had seen to that. She was fair game, and perhaps she'd find me black enough after all. A committee meeting was set for tomorrow, and since it was Jack's birthday, a party at the Thonian would follow. Thus, I would launch my two-pronged attack under the most favorable circumstances. They were forcing me to Reinhardt methods. So, bring on the scientists.
3: Context of white supremacy. We are almost done. In fact, we are so close to ending the book, we might be done next week. Not entirely sure, have to... See exactly how much time we have left, but I mean, we are very close to the end of the book. I'm amazed that we got through this. It seems quickly to me, maybe because this is my favorite book, but I thought this might be one that we would be on, like Warmth of Other Sons or uh, Nelson Mandela's autobiography that took a really long time, but could be one, and we are out of here. Context of white supremacy. Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, when we pick up next week we'll be on chapter 24. If you would like to participate, the number to dial 641 715 3640. The code 564943 pound. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. All the folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, if you have any comments you would like to share, uh, feel free. Uh, If we have not heard from you at all and you think you might have a comment, question, something that you'd like to add to the discussion, go ahead and put your hand up now. Please do not wait until the last moment. Uh, All the folks who dialed in with a hand up, proceed. Proceed. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am, Sister Red.
8: Thank you, Brother Dustin, brothers and sisters. So, um with Reinhardt, uh, with the Reverend Part I I thought it was um really interesting, kind of funny, uh, when he was having the discussion with the two sisters or sister Harris, and I forgot the other one's name. And they were talking about oh sister Judkins. Um, collecting money for the building fund. And it reminds me of my time when I used to go to church and the whole building fund thing and all the different jokes around that. Um, but the one thing that I keep thinking about, which is uh, the question that Gus had posed, like why would white people like the book so much? Because I feel like, especially at the end of this chapter, with um, especially with the the conversation between um, the protagonist and Brother Hambro. It seems like it's really providing a lot of truth. And so I don't know if maybe white people are just, with their arrogance, feel that, you know, Black people aren't going to read and or finish the book um, or, or get through this part. But I feel like it's really, I, I definitely appreciate uh, all the information. And I like the fact how just between um, the conversation uh, with protagonist and brother Hambro, and just talking about all the sacrifice and this. and the some i took a bunch of notes but the main thing that I, I took away from it was um we can only basically victims of racism white supremacy can only basically be a part of the whole when it comes time to being sacrificed so it's really you know kind of to me maybe i could be wrong but kind of like an oxymoron so we're really not a part of the whole it's maybe like just temporarily And it makes me think about all the wars that black people have had to fight in, despite the fact not having rights here, rights in, you know, the quote unquote United States and just so many different things where black people have to do on behalf of the benefit of white people and still not really getting any benefit of it. And I I feel like maybe I, I could be wrong, but I feel like that's something that, um, Ralph Ellison is um, communicating I mean I, I, I definitely like how the protagonist um, the part where he said but but shouldn't um, but shouldn't sacrifice be made willingly by those who know what they are doing My people don't understand why they're being sacrificed they don't even know they're being sacrificed at least not by us and definitely I feel like that's a really really important passage. Um, and then just um, just going over the conversation, Hambro basically um, just you know coming out and, and saying you know you know we don't worry about the aggressiveness of the Negroes, and it reminds me of when I was more confused and how white people they can tell that you're more confused and they will say things to you because you know they can say things about black people to you because they know that you're confused and they know that you won't you, you won't um. Confront them about it, and I feel like that that part right there was I I really liked how uh, the author, the author, um, you know, described that and how also he tied Lincoln in with Brother Hambro. Brother Hambro is supposed to be this really well educated and you know indoctrinating because he did use that um, that term um, teacher and and how you know also Lincoln he had like these two sides you know he really didn't want to free the slaves he really you know was was doing it more along the lines for white people so i i, I kind of like the the Lincoln S face type of uh, reference um, then i guess the other thing that i would mention um just his just the author i'm sorry just the um, protagonist like self awareness about Um, maybe the possible benefits of being invisible. And um, there was also a part where he was saying, you know, he had like a fleeting moment of saying, you know, well, we, he can also fool, you know, other victims or, and really not care about it. You know, he could tell Harlem that they had hope when there really wasn't any. And, um, and I, and I, but I did like how he said, you know, even these thoughts, you know, with him being becoming less confused, they, they, he he quickly kind of um, let those thoughts go. Uh, and the other thing, I couldn't understand what the passage where he said, and because they were blind, they would destroy themselves and I'd help them. I laughed. Here I had thought they accepted me because they felt that color made no difference when in reality it, it made no difference because they didn't see either color or men. But I, I kind of felt like, i i kind of agree but then i kind of confused because i still feel at the end of the at the end of the day you know white people they do still see color because when it comes to who's being sacrificed first or how much of a certain people are being sacrificed it always seems like with you suspected white supremacists they will sacrifice themselves at the least um And and so that's why I kind of felt like, you know, they don't see color or men. I I just couldn't understand that. Uh, The last thing I understand that there was the the grandpa reference. And uh, another thing that I I thought about with myself was when he said, why hadn't I discovered it sooner, just basically talking about his invisibility and how different my life would have been. Uh, So um, definitely. um, Oh, one other thing. And then the Klansmen who are preachers and members of humanitarian societies, that part. I appreciate that part as well. And I'll meet my line. Thank you for allowing me to share.
3: Much obliged for the commentary, Sister Red. Other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary you would like to share, line should be open. Proceed. Maybe here. Greetings, Sister Ivy.
7: Greetings. Greetings, Sister Ivy. I am cool. My notes up real quick. Okay. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm so saddened to hear that, uh, the book is almost over because it's so funny. I was just thinking towards the end of the last segment that just played like, man, I know this segment is going to be over and it's just so incredible. I don't even want it to end. So to hear that the whole book is ending, it's like, oh man, I really appreciated what you said about, um. Well, first of all, I want to say, like, for Red, when she said that she became less confused uh, when it came to uh, cops murdering us, uh, that, that, that I have that same uh, situation where that's the moment when I uh, became less confused as well. Uh, or, yeah, so, and I appreciated what you said to us about how um, this is just going to, we have to replace white supremacy with justice, um, and so therefore you don't get caught up in, you know, all the hashtags and all that. And I did uh, get up, get caught up in that. And I do that a whole lot less, um, not because of what I realized about what you said about having to replace the system, otherwise it's going to keep happening. I got less and less um, caught up in the hashtags and things like that because it just became so, um, so frequent or it, it, it just was happening like every day and you know it was new hashtags and like every day and so it was like you know what's really the point of this and i still do it you know from time to time because it's still so traumatic for me and so even shocking for me at times um and sometimes i find myself thinking more than just once um from time to time just i cannot believe that they are really murdering us on on videotape and like Nothing's happening. This is just allowed to just keep going on. Um, And uh, I like how he said, and I don't don't know if I'm getting this right, but the way that I took it, um, when he talked about I'm going to yes you to death, it seemed like he was saying that the brotherhood, that they just want you to just kind of be, you know, a yes man um, to everything that that they want to have done or to their whole agenda, whether it's incorrect or not. And it's like he was saying that he is gonna, he is gonna sabotage them, um, because what they're doing is incorrect, and he's gonna sabotage them. And one of the ways he's gonna do it is he's gonna use the deception of just saying yes to um, everything. And I, I was, uh, I thought it was profound when he pointed out how he realized, it seemed like, that he was good to everyone, to the Brotherhood, to Doctor Blood, so to just everyone uh, th- throughout this whole book that he has come. Um, in contact with. And I think the the last thing that I wanted to say, or I really wanted to ask you Gus and everyone on the line if there's time, is that I wonder if it seems like we have been um, conditioned to associate uh, minors with romance. Like we will say, you know, my girl or you know, we'll, the, the, the 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 females will say, you know, you know, boy, come here, and it's it's supposed to be a term of endearment, and we talk about a boyfriend and a girlfriend, and we say baby to, you know, to um to endear our mates, um, even in a sexual way, and I wonder if that is from the white supremacist conditioning us that way, um, because there's this, this there's just this big push for pedophilia and we talk about how they have you know 50 year 100 year plans and i see how a lot of these congressmen are coming out talking about their their um their pedophiles and yet they're running for congressmen and 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 they're they're allowed to do that and i saw something else recently um where there's just you know more of a push for this tweets about some people like kids just get over it and some other things that was just trying to normalize and trying to um make pedophilia something that people should just accept just like they did with um uh, homosexuality and so just quickly just just was wondering is it innocent this girl and boy stuff and this boyfriend girl stuff boyfriend girlfriend stuff and his baby stuff or is that just social engineering from the white supremacists to um to to make us, to condition us to accept pedophilia. And uh, that was all I had. And uh, thanks, everyone. Thanks, Gus. I'm in my line.
3: Right on. That seems very afar from the subject of the text. So we'll put a pin on that one. And at the end, if we have an extra moment, or tomorrow, either or, uh, for the compensatory call-in, if folks want to give a thought uh, to Ivy's question, we will make time. Much obliged for the thoughts and the question. Other folks, if you dialed in with a hand up, if we've not heard from you at all, if you have commentary, proceed. Can I be heard? Brother J, St. Louis, yes, sir. Uh, I just wanted to add very
6: quickly that I think the second section demonstrated that kind of subversive potential of invisibility. Um, I think it's very interesting that he's now, you know, consciously uh, thinking of overturning uh, what he what he uh, perceives as a structure of white supremacy uh, within the brotherhood. Um, uh, it made me think of George Jackson. Uh, he wrote about how we need people to infiltrate the systems of power to overturn them as well. And so, this whole invisibility thesis is very interesting. Uh, his his talk with Hambro is interesting as well, um, and the conclusion he ultimately comes to that these um, you know as far as white whites are concerned, these i guess liberal or accepting whites, even them, even though nice whites who will call you brother, are just using you uh, they're materializing you, turning you into an object and using you for their own purposes, and really disregarding the agency. Uh, the will and and I think that kind of echoes your your question from the first section, uh, that agency part of thinking that in, the the agency with intellectual and political pursuits, you know, uh, they want to dictate the trajectory of projects, and they want to uh, uh, dictate it to where they will be at on the top at the end, and it made me think of a uh, a book by John Hobson where he surveyed. How all of these different um, European concepts of politics all are formed, I think uh, Ellison wrote it as well, but they have put themselves in the position to interpret reality, um, and so using their concepts, using their paradigms it's always going to be that they dictate when the right time to- when uh, the time is right to do what, and you 're not supposed to do that. Um, and I think he's finally realizing a caveat, and, and giving some history to something that I think um, commonly we call "new," which is this kind of deceived, colorblind racism that has really characterized post-so-called civil rights, the the so-called civil rights era. Um, I think, with within ac- academia and just you know talking to Black people, uh, we, you know, you get the common narrative that. Back then, racism was blatant, and now it's covert. But I think he's given a new historiography to the ability of whites to be very, very deceptive uh, in their practicing of racism. And um, yeah, yeah, uh, that's yeah, that's that's all I get. that's all I had. Uh, thanks for letting me speak.
3: Much, brought, uh, much obliged, Jay. Uh, I I thought the same thing. Uh, it sounds like he, you know, could have wrote this book in 2010, a uh, 21st century novel. Uh, he had he was talking about a white man using as an excuse for not being racist that he's married to a Negro. I mean, wow. Other folks that we missed completely. If you have uh, commentary. Did we nab uh, everybody? Anybody that we missed it has a hand up that we've not heard from?
4: Yes, may I be heard?
3: Mr. Demery Four, brother
4: Demry Four. Yes. Uh, okay, just a couple of pointers. Um, excellent commentary from the other callers. But <clears throat> uh, the conversation with uh, Brother Hambro uh, when the narrator or the protagonist asks uh, so the weak have to sacrifice for the strong, and there <clears throat> you know which is uh was a uh a decent question you know he's listened to this double talk that uh Hambo has giving him, and it's about uh the only thing he can come up with is is uh okay well uh being this sacrifice. Well, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I I don't have the book. I was listening to the audio. But it's something about being the sacrificee and the sacrificer. Uh, He was going to be both. And uh, I think it was the anti-blackness going on in his mind that allows him to see Reinhardt as a fraud. But it's very difficult for him to Um, the intentions of the brotherhood and this uh, double talk that Brother Hambo has given him. But one important thing uh, Brother Hambo said, he asked him, well, when is all this going to end? And Brother Hambo said at the proper time that science will stop us. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, you, know, you think about that a little bit and you you think that if All is, you know, um, if it's not just reality, if it's a fantasy and morality and rightness will triumph, then maybe you would believe that, uh, you know, at the proper time, that uh, there'd be a change. But at this rate, hundreds, decades, uh, centuries of the same stuff, um, I think they want you to believe. That uh, science will stop us, so you won't uh, mount up any um, defense against uh, what they're doing. And <clears throat> the last thing is, he was saying that he realized that his experiences, he was the summation of all his experiences, and that his experiences made him who he was. And it was interesting that. <clears throat> Instead of uh, investigating the concept of, you know, maybe putting an end to the uh, brotherhood or this system that was creating all this uh, mistreatment, uh, he chose to, um, I guess, um, you know, to put on this impression or to uh, impersonate you know, pretend that he's going along with the system, but not really. Like, that is the only thing he can do instead of just fighting against it, you know, like uh, Ross would uh, have him to do. And I'll mute my line on on that. Thanks, Gus.
3: Much obliged, Mr. Demry. for uh, any other folks have comments that they wanted to get in. Uh, last comment, question. Uh, something, uh, if if any of the comments that you've heard, if you have a question, something didn't make sense. Soon folks are satisfied. A few of the notes that I took for this chapter, I just thought that was ingenious. Uh, the use of words, uh, Roz using the term to describe himself as a spiritual technologist. Is anybody using that? Like, currently, that sounds like something you could be using right now, 2018. Uh, I thought that language of brother and sister, like, it's so, I think it's just, it's so cliche and common uh, and corny, and I'm using the word corny specifically, uh, that even when he is, they think, the sisters think that this is Reverend Roz, and it's, oh, this is Sister Harrison. Oh, we love you, Reverend, and the sisters and sister. And t- I mean, it just flows we could have been back in the brotherhood. Uh it's the same thing. Uh, which is why I've said and I think, you know, Ellison is 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 getting at that in the book. I think that's why he has so many times where he's poking fun uh at someone calling a black person, at anybody, whites or even other black people, uh calling them brother and sister. I think that's just so phony. Uh, like so much of the phoniness that he's pointing out in this book, there's so much hypocrisy uh, in the system of racism, white supremacy. I think that that is what is underpinning why you have uh, Klansmen who are also in uh, what they call humane societies uh, and why why Reverend Roz is also uh, the numbers runner and selling drugs. The system of white supremacy demands hypocrisy. That's what deception is going to produce. Uh, but that. <laughs> Appreciate. I mean, and I think I think that's something that I would have probably glossed over before uh, in pointing out, you know, his his satirical attack on the language of brotherhood and this false fraternity. But it's right there in the black church as well. Continuing, uh, I think I did not think it was correct. The comparison like Raza's hypocrisy and the brotherhood or white's hypocrisy in general. Like I think victims of racism, including Gus T, all of us in a system of white supremacy, we are required to lie. That might be something that you have to do uh, at any time uh, in a system of racism, white supremacy. That's just a part of what a system that is run by deceit is designed to produce. Lots of people who are telling lies all the time. Uh, So I don't look at Roz's conduct in the same way as I do the brotherhood. Roz is a victim of white supremacy. He doesn't have power uh, over any of the black people that are there. now. I mean, he is, you know, fooling some folks uh, with his antics. That is incorrect behavior, but I mean, he is not, he's not even in charge of himself. What he's doing is a response to white supremacy. These folks in the brotherhood, I mean, they have a pretty massive staff. Like, they can go out and hire and set him up uh, with an apartment and give him hundreds of dollars uh of cash advance Roz doesn't he's out on a ladder on a street corner. They're renting out halls and got alcohol and all of this and a salary and secretaries and what have you. Uh that is the system of white supremacy. It's not the same. Uh, if we're talking about a Klansman uh and their deception, if we're talking about Thomas Jefferson uh a founding father declaration of independence and a raping slave owner That's not the same thing as what Reinhardt or any other non-white person uh, is doing, although I do think that is significant. I mean, hey, I think it's it's real important in the system of white supremacy to not have uh, a lot. I think Mr. Fuller talks about not having undue focus on the person. Follow the logic, because all of us uh, make lots of mistakes uh, and all of us are in the cesspool of white supremacy. So nobody is, you know, that's sparkling uh, in this particular system. Uh, continuing a uh, great uh conversation with uh Brother hambro uh, about who's going to be sacrificed uh, in all of this predictably black people uh I guess one uh question that i'll I'll get in what what any thoughts on his brief comment that he his childhood memory of forgetting the nursery rhyme Humpty Dumpty in front of the Church audience, just passing comment to think on uh continuing um, I thought this is such a huge uh part I thought this section was really well written as well, but I thought that was such a huge moment when he's kind of getting it now he's he's kind of disillusioned with the brotherhood and understanding oh okay, this is why brother Todd left and chose to soul to sell uh, Sambo dolls, as opposed to staying in the brotherhood for this nonsense. I get it Uh, and understanding Reinhardt and he can, you know, can go out and do all of these different things and, you know, have these people fooled like, okay, I'm starting to understand and even rethinking with his understanding. Now, I think I even understand what granddad was saying. Like, wow, I thought that was such a uh, just eloquently written uh, paragraph Uh, I think he may have accurately uh, interpreted what granddad meant uh, to be a traitor. Just taking uh, a guess. But uh, I thought that that whole I highlighted like that whole page uh, really what he was talking about. He would yes him to death and go back I think right very much in the spirit of uh, Sam Greenlees the spook who sat by the door. I'm going to sabotage him and sign up a whole lot or make up a whole lot of unemployed Negroes to put them on the roll that way they don't have to pay dues and uh that way it'll look like everything is great their strategy is working and that is not the case at all um i will say if the thesis with regards to black people being invisible if that means you are not seen at all i would say that is not the case Uh, i would say what i've said pretty consistently You are under hyper surveillance as a black person. Uh, And I think what we hear on workplace racism every Thursday confirms you are under hyper surveillance. Now, this could be metaphorically speaking. I think a lot of it is. But now if we're talking not seen at all, that somehow you're going to slip by white people's radar and be able to pull something off. Probably not. Especially now in the drone age. Probably not. I could be an error. Uh with that, uh, we will we're pretty much at our three hours. Uh I am not sure if this will be all done. I will have to look. I'll have to kind of see how much time it all is and uh if it'll all fit in the allotted three hours, but we are very close to being done. So if you have questions, comments, you want to think of conclusions to what I think is just an extraordinary novel. Next week, we might have one more, but I mean, you should really be thinking of what am I going to take away from the extraordinary Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man? uh, Chapter 12 or segment 12 uh, next Friday, same time, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. We'll be here tomorrow. Compensatory call in 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, Again, the email untiljustice at gmail.com. If you have questions, thoughts uh, if you want to answer any of the questions that were posed in the book club we will make time for sister ivy's question important one on the compensatory call in tomorrow evening tune in if you have a thought share or you can email and i'll read your response on the air for tomorrow's broadcast uh thanks everyone for tuning in i hope it was a constructive investment of your friday evening Again, even though it's lovely, it's been uh, summer weather finally here in Seattle. 80 degrees, beautiful sunny days. Uh, Great frolic, go outside, have fun. You should still be super codified. In my view, that means sobriety would still be best, even in summer sun. Racists do not desist from practicing white terrorism just because the weather is nice. In fact, in some circles, it seems that they increase their abuse. Dr. Welsing and many others that we esteem would strongly encourage us to protect our health and brain computers. Let's be sober so we can make great decisions and crank out concepts to permanently solve the problem. Whites. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we're in a vehicle, driver or passenger. Let's do everything we possibly can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in
4: nigga you so brainwashed I'm a
3: victim brother you a victim right. I'm up. a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my condition. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> okay, round
0: two. Name something that's not boring.
2: A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah,
0: oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino.